Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. And my name's Sam. Beer Temple is a renowned bottle shop and tap room located in Chicago's Avondale neighborhood. Owner Chris Quinn is obsessively focused on the curation of quality beers, customers' experience, and all the details, down to the types of light used and the temperature at which the beer is stored and cared for, or dispensed from on draft. It is this drive and focus that has garnered accolades such as Best Bottle Shop in Illinois and Rape Beer for multiple years, and a widely held feeling among every brewery that is in the Chicago market that it is imperative to be present uh, on their shelves or on draft. In our wide-ranging conversation with Quinn, we discuss the beginnings of Beer Temple, the foundations of his palate, and touch on topics such as integrity in craft beer, defining artisanship, responsibility as quality as a quality retailer, and what the future of craft beer may look like. Crack open a beer, put a few more on ice, and join us. Let's dive and get heavy. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, not many people know that. Not many know that. <laughs> not many people but know, I know that. that. <laughs> but I know that. I'm going to make the greatest sounds ever. <laughs> That was good. I think, I forget, I think he was talking about health or something. Trump, I think, literally said, I'm the healthiest person ever. <laughs> Which is awesome. It's amazing. I'm the healthiest person ever. <laughs> it, it's, it's great. I love it. On That's his, like, burnt steak and hamburger <laughs> diet, he's maintained right? the greatest health ever. Yeah. I love it. It's, I also love the idea that he was talking about, like, literally not, like, figuratively literally wanting to be on mount rushmore yeah, yeah. i say <laughs> honestly i say do it that would be amazing if donald trump's stupid fat head is you can say whatever you want yeah forever sorry i think that would be just to me for my like just like i don't have a lot of rever i mean the people themselves but the reverence of like a bunch of faces cut into a stone like yeah throw trump up there <laughs> so people can just like go and like shake their head for the rest of the time <laughs> that'd be so amazing and their son the that comb man. over yeah. <laughs> imagine yeah. that so man good. standing next to the four grades well yeah right. and you put him right put him right next to washington put him on the left man like i want him first i mean you do know that uh there are people that hold him with the same reverence that people of the time held the those uh totally. those individuals yeah. too as well right mm -hmm. put him up there yeah put him why, up why and the change in technology too of how those uh that edifice is carved as well too they could like spray paint them in and oh, really yeah. capture that orange on the really on get that, the that tan rock. in yeah. there yeah that would be use great. like a 3d printer man just like and just like do it in a day i i and, hope we plant some <laughs> shrubbery on the on the hair you know really capture his uh i'd love it oh, i'll tell you one thing i mean we, i would visit i've never been to mount rushmore if his face went on there i would absolutely go out there and be like i gotta see this this i have to see with my own eyes pictures <laughs> do not suffice but, it but just simply maybe won't that's do. my twisted sense of humor i, I would but. be very curious to see as well i would never go to mount rushmore but if yeah. that were something I mean, to see i would totally go yeah. i would really be curious as to how that would be executed yeah um and I would be also curious to see how long it would take before someone were to get up there and deface that as well. Yeah. Oh, it's true. 
Not long at all. Yeah. <laughs> Not although, long at all. Although you'd have like Proud Boy regiments, you know, like patrolling it and, and everything like that. So it would be uh, God, it would be a zoo. It would be a zoo in addition to like just ridiculous, at least for the next couple of years. And then people would not care. And it would probably just be forever defamed and, and stuff like that. But um, I don't know. I mean, I say do it. Put his face up there. Just, we, you know, 2020 has been rough. We need a little something to light up the mood. Yeah, lighten up the mood. Put his face up there. Come on. Throw, on Throw me a bone, please. <laughs> Just give us something we can laugh at eternally. Yeah. 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 I mean, you could Google it, but it doesn't have the same punch as just, yeah. you know, actually seeing it. Yeah. But the Google's got you covered if you ever wanted to see it. I do want to see it. I think uh, I think this is one of my favorites right here. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's God. that's pretty like, good. That's that's right, kind of right exactly there. what I want it to look yeah. like too. It's oh wow. What you want. Yeah. Whoa. Uh huh. Yeah. There's there's a good one here where they just replace all of it with uh, all the faces. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, see, I take it back. That's that, what I want. That's it to what be you like. want. That's, that's what I want. <laughs> I want Matt Rushmore to become that. Mount Trump one. All four faces are him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, when you have a full auto- autocratic dictatorship, you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah. It could so, also yeah. become a uh, Trump family memento as well, there too. We True. Don Jr. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ivanka. Ivanka. Mm-hmm. Well, you, know, you could throw Melania in there. Why not? Yeah. And yeah. then Eric. Yeah. And then... Eric. You'd have it's, to build it's, out it's, more. Wouldn't it be amazing maybe, if it yeah. was the three Trump children and then his, like, third wife and then, like, the two, <laughs> the other daughter is also just, like, left off again? <laughs> An act of revisionist oh, history. <laughs> that would be amazing. So it's Don Jr., Ivanka... Eric, and then just someone else, but not you. <laughs> not your. <laughs> Be great. I don't even know her name, but you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Does anyone know her name? Tiffany. Tiffany. Tiffany Trump. There we go. Good old Tiffany. Good old Tiff. Yeah. <laughs> Causing a Tiff too. Causing a Tiff and finding new life in uh, in our revisionist fucked up world. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Chris, I just realized I realized this was recording, by the way, just now. Oh yeah, I mean, okay. we're just getting, we're just having fun and warming up. Oh you yeah. Know. Um, so yeah, Chris, welcome to Happy Hops. Yeah, welcome. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate Absolutely. It. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we're gonna let's uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you found craft beer and how you ended up in Chicago as well. Okay. Uh, well. I was, do I need to say who I am or anything like that? Or We're going to record the intro got uh, it. Intro later. Perfect. Um, so how I got into craft beer. So a lot of people have, um, well, people ask me for like my light switch moment or when was the moment. And I, I didn't really have that kind of, of moment. I'd always been looking for or been interested in beers outside of the, what I considered at the time to be the normal mainstream stuff. But for me, that was like, you know, pretty poor attempts. So like in, in college as a freshman, I'd be like, well, I want to try this red dog stuff. Maybe that's, you know, what I should really be drinking and, and, you know, trying to convince myself that that was better somehow. Um, and then I, I went to school in, well, I grew up in, in Philadelphia. I went to school in Delaware, two places that I feel were ahead of the curve nationally compared to most other places obviously i think you know like oregon um uh, california and and colorado would be up there and and probably even you know arguably ahead of of pa and uh 
in Delaware, but still, um, there was a lot going on even back in the, you know, late nineties and, and stuff like that there or mid nineties stuff. And, um, I was just always kind of trying different stuff. I bought like a book of like the world's best beers and would like flip through it to find the highest rated one because even back then, you know, rankings and, and stuff like that were, I was like, oh, that's, that is the best. So I have to try it. And I remember it was a Rogue's uh, Shakespeare Stout. And I finally drank it and was like, this is the best beer in the world. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe now I would actually like it more than back then. But um, so I had always kind of been interested. Um, I was going to like, even before I'd say I was into craft beer, I was doing weird things like going to barley wine festivals in like the 90s, like before I even knew what a barley wine was and, and just being interested in it. But for me, the, the real change came not until I was here in Chicago, actually. I was in Sheffield's, which is a, a very well-known uh, beer bar, one of the originals here in, in Chicago. Um, and I was drinking this beer that I brought with me. I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead by mentioning it, but no, it's the Dogfish it. Head Pumpkin Ale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got it because I had, you know, first one of the first craft beers I ever had that was local to where I was drinking was, was Dogfish Head, being from Delaware. And I was just kind of, it, it dawned on me that um, compared to maybe, well, there was something going on. Like this was was kind of, Something was happening, something was fomenting and, and growing, and I thought it was really cool that it was happening um, all over the country. So it was happening where I was at the time in Chicago. There was you know local stuff that was just exciting and truly world-class, um, that there was just new stuff coming out all the time. People were being experiment, experimental. I think Dogfish had especially kind of uh, that being one of my early experiences, how experimental that they weren't afraid to fail in a way, you know, which I, I really admire, like taking the risks that way. Um, and having come from kind of a wine background, my family is much more into wine and the local product in wine, unless you live in very specific parts of the world, your local product just cannot be world-class. It can't, but beer could be. So I was kind of like, drinking this pumpkin ale where I went to school. I was drinking some founders at the time. I was drinking some other stuff and being like, kind of feeling proud to be, you know, an American beer drinker because we were making the most exciting stuff in the world at the time. And that's what really led me down the rabbit hole for the first time. But like, I'm going to look long and hard into what's going on with, with craft beer. And then, you know, it was off and running from there. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, Give us kind of a time frame as far as uh, when you were kind of discovering uh, craft beer and yeah. were there other people around you that were a part of it? Was there, were you studying like social sciences that kind of opened you up to these kinds of things as well? Or was it like you said, your family was interested in wine as well? Was that part of like a beverage interest? Yeah, I think there was a beverage, kind of a, a culinary, uh, maybe gourmand. Uh, we, we just, my family was very into um, just food and high-end food and stuff. I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, my mom was going to 
you know, well, this place has the best charcuterie. I'm going to go downtown to get these cheeses. I'm going to go, you know, which is a very kind of an old world way of looking at it. She was actually born in, in Holland. Maybe that's one of the reasons. Um, and her family is is very kind of well-versed in, in kind of classical French cooking. So I was just surrounded by that stuff and, and baking and, and all that sort of stuff. I never had an interest in creating. I've never been a creator. Um, like you, Lexi, do way more on the creation side than I have an interest in, in doing, for example. But I loved trying different things, learning about them, and then later I found like curating it and stuff like that. So I think maybe that's what primed me to to want to do that. Just exposure to um, things that you have passable examples of every day. But then, oh, there's other versions of it that are like way better, way more interesting. Um, I guess if anything, that that was it. And then. Uh, yeah, I've always just been interested in kind of high quality food items, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, this yeah. this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Does it? Sam? Yeah, it does. Yeah, really? it does. yeah okay. This, uh, I think, <laughs> you know, uh, we've talked about it on the show before about your background, Sam, yeah. in culinary uh, interests and also like your. Uh, that leading into Dude. your beverage interest, right? Definitely, which then leaned heavily into wine as well. Okay. Um, and then I later on found beer. Um, part of the fascination for me with beer was finding out, um, you know, there's specific regions that have done a specific style over and over and over again for hundreds, I wouldn't say thousands of years, but definitely hundreds of years. Um, specifically, Lambics always drew my attention quite a bit. Sure. Um, so for you, when you found out about that style and something that was technically region locked, did you embrace it with the open arms? Did you enjoy it a lot? Or was it something you thought of as kind of hindering your appreciation for craft beer? The fact that something like Lambic is is almost like a like a, a DOC, like it's it's I think that's that's awesome personally. Um, I think it can go a little too far. I think in the world of wine, um, you know, there are some protections that need to be put in place, but I think it can be a little bit stifling. Um, but I do think uh, also for the people in that region, I think it can be stifling. But um, I, I tend to like it for for Lambic. Um, I think it's also a great way uh, for other brewers to, who are brewing in that style to give a nod to the people who kind of started doing that. It doesn't bother me um, personally that it's kind of uh, designated of being, you know, from a certain origin or something like that, especially something like Lambic, where, you know, ostensibly the local, you know, microflora is is unique. I don't know if that's actually the case. I know the Belgians would certainly say it is, but um, <laughs> what but, do you guys think? I mean, well, uh, I mean, this is I mean, this is a pretty hot debate, and right. I think that. Um, Arguably, you can even say that this is an evolving situation, too, because who knows Absolutely. what climate change is going to do to impact well, this as well, too. I know. That's what I was um, going to say. Both on the technical side of producing beer and changing when seasons are and what they are, but potentially what the complexion of that microflora is, looks like anyways. So, and I mean, the brewing season's already been like screwed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Cool ship season's just shifted so much since 
I mean, you can look back at records of them brewing these beers and they were do them earlier in the year and now they're having to do them later and later. And eventually, are we going to get to a point where they can't even cool ship anymore? But then you have to also look at the microflora that they are um, inoculating that beer with. If it goes away, is Lambic Lambic at that point? Or if it changes and then it becomes similar to something somewhere else in the world, then all of a sudden, yeah. why is it? If there's so much congruency there, why can this can beer not be made in this part of the world and have that same designation? True. If the key to what the region is supposed to be outside of the political dimensions of it, which is really what is at stake yeah. here, right? Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. there is political and uh, economic considerations and arguably um, cultural aspects as well that are always pointed to as a part of this discussion. Um, mm. When I sit and I drink uh, spontaneously fermented beers from the Lisen region, and I drink them from other parts of the world, if I'm drinking something I don't immediately recognize as a signature of Cantillon or De La, or oh, sorry of Drifontainen or uh, Decam, if that's something, then I can't really tell a difference between them. To be honest, like, yeah. and I've been drinking these beers for a while, mm -hmm. uh, and I, for a while, tried to convince myself that this is a signature of this, this is a signature of that. But I think climate change can change all this pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they definitely have, well, overarching characteristics that they tend to get categorized in in terms of the... Um, um, the lambic houses and and what they taste like and stuff like that. There's a guy, a local guy here in Chicago, Mark Lindsner, who's been going every year for probably over 20 years and making notes of every lambic every year and how they evolve and everything like that. And he showed it to me and and to him at least, although it's probably biased because he knows what he's drinking. He does kind of categorize stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've never really thought about whether it being a uh, a designation is is a bad thing. I mean, I, I always I, I think of maybe in this instance, like Chablis was so bastardized in like what maybe like the late eighties or nineties or whenever it was, mm -hmm. where you could just call anything Chablis and they were making it like just terrible box wine quality stuff out in California. <clears throat> people you know, people still like my mother um thinks of Chablis as like, you know, or did until recently as like, oh, no, you just got to stay away from that. But it's like, no, it's it's probably the greatest white Burgundy region mm -hmm. in the world, you know, or the, or the Chardonnay, you know, region in, in the world, if you ask me. And, you know, I think France taking control of that term was instrumental in kind of uh, recognizing how good some of that stuff is. I also think that I don't know. I mean, what's the what's the problem with someone having that designation? You still can make beers in that style. I don't think that it... But it isn't Lambic. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Lambic style, but is it... I don't know. I mean, you seem to be on one side of it. You seem to be on the other. Because right. I, I attribute it to, um, uh, if you want to go back to France, and you look at the Burgundy region. If you're drinking a Burgundy, odds are you're drinking Chablis or... Mm -hmm. More famously, you're drinking Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. If you drink a Pinot Noir from Burgundy, it's obviously a Burgundy. But if you drink a Pinot Noir from any other region, it's just a Pinot Noir. Right. But at the end of the day, you're still drinking a Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, so, like for me, 
I, I, I understand the designation of the Lambic and the specific region it's tied to, but also I feel like even American producers such as Oxbow or even Jester King do justice to that specific style that you would consider a Lambic. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Totally. And I think that there's also producers in America that uh, actively have tried to show some kind of reverence or understanding of what they're doing and others haven't. And I think that's where the uh, producers in the Lausanne region take issue is they're looking for that kind of understanding um, and finding another way, whether it's like uh, method goose or, or uh, some type of designation that can say this isn't exactly this, but it's something that right. utilizes those ingredients and processes in a similar way. Um, I haven't really come to an exact conclusion of my own on where I stand with it, but I do think that this is going to be something that changes as climate changes too. And, uh, how can it not? Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, there's apparently, I forget if it's like, uh, there's a professor at like the university of Arizona or university of New Mexico that did a study specifically on, uh, the impact. Are you familiar with this, Chris? I don't um, know. Yeah, we, I, we read this a while we, back. We, yeah. I think we read like an abstract of it, but the mm-hmm. is, is sense the ostensibly they said that climate change is impacting, uh, obviously everywhere and also that specific region, and we don't know exactly how it's going to change uh, the microflora and therefore the bacteria that inoculates the beer, but it is going to in some way, and so we may not really see this because of also the fact that these beers take a long time to make too. And mm-hmm. so when you compound that with gradual climate change, um, this may be something our children are thinking about more than us. Yeah. There's so much stuff like that. You, the environmental impacts of that you may not think, uh, will have a, a dramatic impact, uh, do. And it also happens like slowly over time. I think, um, I was talking with uh, Mike Miller, the owner of Delilah's um, uh, Whiskey Bar, and I mean that guy knows a lot about uh, you know whiskey, any any kind of brown liquor, any kind of liquor really, and you know it's amazing. In that place, you can go and try Jim Beam from the fi- you, as far back as it goes, really. Like mm-hmm. he'll have one from the '40s, he'll have one from the '60s, he'll have one from the '80s, he'll have a bottle from you know 20 years ago. And be like, do you want to do a flight of Jim Beam and see how the same distillate, uh, you know, you would think tastes different over time. And and he was talking about how just the size of the white oak trees have gone have gotten smaller because they're now kind of this farmed thing where they're they're only so old and then they farm them. So he's like, you know, the you're not getting into that like heartwood of these big oak trees anymore for making the barrels and he's saying was showing me you know what he would consider to be certain characteristic that was common to bourbon that does not exist and cannot really exist anymore because the trees that the size of the tree that they're using are no longer there they just they don't exist because it's been more kind of it's just become too big to have that many old big old oak trees um I think it's kind of similar how, you know, that's, that's more of a, well, I guess they're both direct human impact, you know, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but this one's more immediate, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that one was, um, it, it was, it's interesting. And to me, it's, you know, it's a little, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's better or worse for the end 
product. But to me, there is a little bit of sadness in that passing away. You know, the good thing about whiskey, at least, is it is a time capsule. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not going to change like this Lambic stuff will. So you can go back and, and try these, you know, examples of what the bourbon used to be like versus what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know where it's going with that, but it reminded me of what you were saying with the climate change. Yeah. And stuff like that. Yeah. Well, and definitely with whiskey, with having to use new oak, um, you're right. definitely getting that in an accelerated manner too. Yeah. Absolutely. If you're talking bourbon, it's got to be new American oak every time you uh, do its aging. So it, it is actually really, really sad when you think about it. And seeing the direct consequences of our actions actually acting out and unfolding in front of us and the consequences of us loving it too in the case of whiskey it's like it would still be like that if not if if there weren't so many people who well who knows i don't want to blame i mean whiskey bourbon has exploded Um, oh yeah and you know that i guess that's one of the results of it is the is the overall product uh, uh negatively affected because of its popularity i don't it, it's impossible to know you'd have to get you know you'd have to get someone in a time machine from the past to come here and try it and be who knew the stuff back then and be like what do you think maybe be like oh my gosh this is better than anything we'd ever made you know but my I don't know. My my maybe pessimistic tendency is to think that that wouldn't be the case. <laughs> that this I, stuff was like, what is this stuff you're drinking? Yeah, I think the most uh, absorbable way for people who don't drink and analyze what they're drinking to kind of take this all in is if you've ever had um, heritage style vegetables or heirloom vegetables compared to what you buy in the grocery store. Even if you're buying organic grocery store vegetables, if you have an heirloom vegetable you taste something that you could eat a tomato for the first time. It's, it's literally like that. And I had celery uh, heirloom celery (laughs) and it was like, didn't look any like anything I'd ever had. didn't taste (laughs) like anything I'd ever had. Mm -hmm. One thing was the flavor was probably magnified by 20. It's Mm -hmm. unbelievable. And so when I always consume these heirloom vegetables, I think of, as a cook, I just think of what the people before us ate before agricultural industrial farming took over everything. And man, they were eating good. Even if they didn't have all the seasonings and spices that we have available to us now, you can just chomp into any vegetable and absorb so much flavor from that, that you don't really need all these excessive imported seasonings and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's insane. Well, and then, okay. So overlay that on top of the um this imaginary scenario that you prescribed chris of someone coming from the past and tasting uh Mm -hmm. tasting whiskey so with that they're bringing this palette that um is really really interesting and they probably would recognize it most if they were someone that knew quite a bit about it at that time they would recognize it most just by the color and maybe less with all of the distinctive flavors that they remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, uh, you could probably, yeah, uh, put that along to all sorts of food, like really anything. Like, I'm, I'm very interested. I, I would love to know what they would think of some of these, like, boxed cereals, boxed anything that we do, like, candy you know here's a here's some you know here's a twinkie what do you think of it i get i don't know maybe they would be fall in love with these in in like in 
flavors just intensify probably beyond what is easily available to those people back then. Or they would just be like, this this tastes wrong. This doesn't taste right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what is the this isn't sugar. It's sweet, but it's not sugar as as they knew it anyway. You know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Curious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think anything that's processed in that manner would look uh would look totally different. Foreign. Yeah, foreign. Foreign. Also definitely. like I, <laughs> I think the whole explosion of secondary market when it comes to, uh, we've seen this a little bit with beer, but I would argue with bourbon spirits in particular, uh, and you know, to a small degree wine, we see that quite a bit. And I think that um, once our guy from the early 19th, or from the 19th century, like gets a grasp on secondary, on black market value, I wonder if that's gonna change the flavor to them too, because black market already changes the flavor of what people experience when they trade X number of things for this one thing or these two things. I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. know enough about the bourbon trading market, but I know that it's a vibrant thing and it's like- Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing for me, it's always, and I guess this goes with literally any commodity, but people tell me, and it could be with bourbon, or, or or anything that is kind of has a secondary value, um, secondary market value is someone says, you know, this is worth picking $500. My answer is to who? Not to me. It's not worth mm-hmm. 500 bucks to me. So you, you got to have a buyer for this stuff. I mean, it's, and I think some of it is, is it's purely a, um, a commercial venture. It's all just like this, game of of maybe even perceived supply and demand and and manipulation to it's a game it's just a game it it, it i don't i think oftentimes it may have some time some, some tie to the you know ve- the quality of the product if we're talking about whiskey and and stuff like that i mean let's talk about you know the big ones like lambic you're talking about uh cantillon or something like that and then for um whiskey you know pappy would be like the one that now everybody knows the name of (laughs) it's not people expect these things when they try them to transcend the product that they are and Mm -hmm. it it will not do that pappy is not going to transcend bourbon and a a rare cantillon is not going to transcend or a rare any beer is not going to transcend beer it's still going to be beer it's going to be a very good beer maybe to you to somebody um but i think some perspective i think perspective often gets lost especially when you see some of these prices for you know i don't know it's crazy i mean i when i i lived in chicago uh by uh the house of gluns which is a, a really old beautiful lovely wine shop in old town and my first experience with pappy van winkle was going there and seeing literally like a Macy's style window display, <laughs> all pappy, huge, like crazy point of sale that I'm sure would be worth so much right now. Mm-hmm. Just like all of it, just sitting in the window. They had it all the time. Mm-hmm. It was like, what is this Pappy Van Winkle stuff? Like, I, you know, I, I had no idea. And they obviously thought it was awesome. Like, they loved it. Um, they thought it was probably the best stuff or, or whatever it was. But, you know, I mean, why why wasn't there the hype around it to the common person 
then. And now it's just trickled down. I mean, when I first opened the the uh, the beer temple, we didn't have any bourbon at first, but then we started bringing in bourbon. I had one bourbon. It was well or 12 because I thought it was great value for the money. And then we, we used to buy that stuff like multiple cases a week. And now we get maybe a couple bottles a year of that stuff. And the price has doubled or probably tripled, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, the whole point of this thing was that it was a value. The mm-hmm. whole, like, yeah, the whole, yeah, that was the whole spin on this thing was the value. And you've taken it away. But it hasn't hurt it. It's become only, as the price goes up, it only has become more popular. Weller's one of the one of the top bourbons, without a doubt. Yeah, and it's like, it used to be a value, like a great value bourbon for a 12-year. At least that's how I remember it, it being. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's so crazy that it wasn't Pappy. That was the whole idea. But then I think, it was like overnight, GQ... I think it was magazine put it out and called it poor man's pappy and related it to <laughs> pappy pappy and how like the barrels that weren't used for pappy were used for this. It was the same everything. And, and even if that's true or not, um, I don't know enough about it. Well, of course it, it wasn't the same barrels. They all have to use new right. American oak right. and whatever didn't get used for pappy. <laughs> that lot of trees is going to be a pappy is are, are destined to be pappy. Yeah, right. Barrels. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. you're making me so pessimistic. No, about no. Things. Okay. No, it's a, <laughs> here. All right. Let's do this. So, uh, with all that being said, um, I do think that, uh, the type of curation that you were talking about earlier, um, there's a lot of creativity that does go into curation. And when you have, a limited space like you had in 2013 when you opened the beer temple originally and there were probably more beers that you wanted to have in there at that time than you could fit and so what to you uh like what is curation for you when it comes to choosing beers and spirits uh and wine which you have all of those things mm-hmm. now um what goes into curation curation for you? What are the val? Is it values? Is it flavor? Like, uh, how does all that work for you? Um, yeah, I think it's all those things, uh, values and flavors and, and kind of breadth of, of what we want to present. Um, I, I, I really, I go into some of those, um, you know, large liquor stores that, that have everything or almost everything. And, I, I, it, it, I just don't, I don't want to do it that way. Even if I had that much space, I, I wouldn't want to have everything. What's the point of having everything? I mean, I guess there's a, a shop where you go in and presumably everything sells. So nothing is sitting on the shelf, which is, I think an impossibility realistically, but, um, you know, you, I want some perspective. I want someone to help with curation and i even see it in on tap lists i'll go into a beer bar well used to be able to go into a beer bar look at their tap list and say i have no interest in this entire beer program because i can just see what this person has no perspective this person oh this person read that local was popular i see and it's just like a smattering of just like random local beers with apparently no regard for quality, um, 
where I'll have other, I'll go to other places that have small lists and I can almost like see what they're trying to do. You know, I, I can kind of feel what they're going for. They're not going for everything. They might have like five or six beers and it could be like, that is an amazing beer list for this place in six beers. Like I am down, I'm bought in. I like, I like this beer program. And I think that's what curation can do. It, it gives you some perspective on this person's point of view. Um, I'd say the beer temple isn't even my personal point of view. It's one that we've created for the beer temple. And, you know, I don't do the beer buying anymore, but to the credit of Steven and Max who do the beer buying for the, the, the tap room and the, the bottle shop, it's not their personal preferences either. We've all agreed that like, this is what we're trying to do with curation here at the beer temple. And, and for us, that would be having a wide variety of styles um, trying to have really all styles uh, it, when possible or practical um, and good examples of all of them. But, you know, there are certainly is some, you know, I, I can't say that I don't bring in, that we don't bring in, um, you know, a whole bunch of certain styles that are very, very popular, even if it's not our personal favorites. I mean, that's also not the point. I mean, you have to give people what they want. Um, and if it was up to us, we wouldn't have, we'd have literally no, we'd have literally no, uh, milkshake IPAs and we'd probably have very few hazy IPAs, which is, we don't just, we don't drink them. We don't prefer them, but that's not to say that milkshake IPAs are not a thing of the moment. Like that is what beer, that's a big part of beer right now. Pastry stouts are a part of craft beer right now. So for us to say that they don't exist, you know, is not realistic. So what we try to do is, one, have the ones that are popular, that people want, but also if there's ones that, you know, kind of we raise our eyebrows at in a good way and say, oh, that one's one's kind of cool. It might not be the most hyped one, but I bet you if we could turn some people onto it who like these styles, they dig this one too. Um, So I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of how we approach what to bring in and 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 why i mean it and it's harder it's harder to do than when i opened i will say that in in some ways used to be hard to get fresh beer um fresh beer has gotten easier i think it's going to get much more difficult again especially with all this consolidation that's going on i think that's really not going to be a good thing for for craft beer overall um but it it styles now it's just it, they're harder to, oh man, I'm so pessimistic. <laughs> it's so, it's, it's harder to get a wide variety of, of stuff now. I mean, try to bring in an, an, an amber ale, not that that's the most popular style in the world, but like, I'm down to like two choices now. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not possible to bring them in. Uh, so now like, okay, well you have a choice of two different beers. Which amber do you want? This one or that one? You know, when we're talking from a buying perspective where, um, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily good. Maybe nobody cares about Amber and it's a dead style and, and it's just, you know, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But do I need to have, do I need to be able to buy 50 different hazy IPAs with the same combination of hops every week? Like, well, this one's Sabro Citra Galaxy, but this one is Sabro uh, El Dorado Galaxy. 
And the other one lactose. Right. And as lactose. And the other one is Sabro Galaxy, you know, Motueka. This one's Mosaic Motueka Galaxy. It's like, all right, you're dealing with... I mean, it's the same beer. Right. And it's not everybody. Oh, right. And the, that's the other thing is like you have three base beers that you're dealing with and then you're just hopping them differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, um, so there's a certain aspect of... There's no beauty in that. Right. And so I think what we're, uh, what we're talking about here is the fact that how beer is made and what the how it may be easier or more derivative for a producer to make beer is rather different and some of that is consumer informed too because you're talking about um the world of beer that you came from and the world of beer that was kind of towards the it was in its twilight years when beer temple opened and that was the world of beer that we certainly operated in when i was at local option was the there are styles and there are producers from all over the world that excel in these specific things or there's some type of uh, special quirky story about them and that flavor is just them. No one else can create that, whether it's terroir or whether it's uh, sensibilities, right? Or mm-hmm. something that's culturally informed or something that, uh, or, you know, another XYZ factor. So nowadays it's a little bit different because uh, people aren't looking for the world of styles anymore. That type of, um, I think that type of interest in trying new things all the time has changed and it's become more dominated by uh, certainly we can talk about the role of the internet and social media changing that quite changing the landscape of that going to visual more visual cues but also the mentality of the person that is going to be interested in these things has changed to someone that is probably more of a sneaker collector than someone Mm who uh, is very interested in the social sciences and wants to learn about all these beers from all over the world. Um, and so I, I just kind of, so how does that, uh, how does that inform, like, how does that uh, work with how you approach buying too? Because you do have a smaller section of the store that's kind of, that you dedicate to having things like Lazentorin or having Stroisa when you can have it and Lambix and Brekeriet and all these things from, you know, a three company set of portfolios of importers too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That, that's, that, that area is, is dwindling. Um, You know, I mean, I know a style that is kind of near and dear to you, like the Scandinavian stout. I don't know if that's actually what they're called, but you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Very distinct style uh, flavor wise. It's, it's just, it doesn't really exist in any meaningful sense in Chicago anymore. Like you just cannot get stouts like that. Um, So the shelf has to shrink. I mean, it, we, it's not that we want to have them, but we just, we, we can't. Um, I, I like that kind of sneaker collector mentality. I mean, the, the way I look at it is, is the kind of that, that part of uh, the movie American psycho where they're all looking at their business cards and they're all the same. <laughs> they're all the same. Mm-hmm. But they're all like, oh, I love that font. Wow, he's got the best font. And then somebody else has a better font, you know, and it drives the guy insane. Uh-huh. Um, that to me, and and let's let's give some credit to maybe there are people who can appreciate the 
minutia and the subtleties of this style, I guess my question is, does it need to be that subtle? Does it need to be that subtle and also ever, ever changing? You know, like, why don't you just make some of these year round? A, a great example is um, West Coast IPA. They're kind, it, it, it's kind of making a, a mini, mini comeback. But, you know, you'll have some of these local breweries who will put out a, a West Coast IPA every three months, maybe twice a year, something like that. And then people drink it and say, yeah, I'm not really into the West Coast thing. It's like, they, they made one batch. Like, how long do you think it takes to dial in something like that? Because then we've put on draft some, like, like legit, like these guys, like uh, Beachwood from uh, Long Beach, California, mm -hmm. we put on their West Coast IPA. Mm -hmm. We've had some of that stuff come in and it floors people. I was like, that is a West Coast IPA. Mm -hmm. These people have been making West Coast IPAs for 15 years. They know how to do it. That's what it's supposed to taste like. So, and you're like, so, oh, okay. It's like, yeah, it, no offense. I mean, I'm not trying to discredit the, the brewers here in, in Chicago. We make, or they make, amazing, world-class beers. But it's not fair to think that someone can just step in and start, like, we're going to make a Scandinavian stout, and it's going to be, you know, better than anything Nog ever did. It's like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But then the consumer drinks it and says, yeah, no, I definitely like the hazies more, or, or whatever, in the stout, uh, pastries more. It's like, well, yeah, it's because they make pastries every week. Yeah. That's why they've got that dialed in. Mm -hmm. And I want to see people keep keep at it, like perfect these styles that have a proven track record of people enjoying them. Go out. I think now there's an opportunity to like kind of, to use a, a term that Doug Velicki, uh, uh, the beer cruncher, the beer aficionado uh, uh, says is, you know, zag when everyone else is, is zigging. If everyone's doing this, like you can corner the market on pick a style there's a million of them just like nail it and and go for it mm -hmm. i mean that's how allagash white and so many other beers like grew to dominance is you know there's nobody else making something like that and even there's room for breweries that do everything else mm -hmm. uh that is yeah. that like where if it's not one style it's a conglomeration of classic styles or old world styles and if you can be an authority of that then no one like I, I I like the idea that um you have to work at it to be very good at it and you're not going to be able to um step in and do it overnight and be right. and be perfect at it. I mean I'm sure someone has done it. Of course. But yeah. it was luck. Yeah. Right. It was luck. If you've never done it before, how do you know? Nobody I can mean, do a, a style, a new style and nail it every time they do it. It it's it's not possible i mean that's like saying like yeah every sport i play i'm amazing at every time i i, I pick it up mm -hmm. you know maybe you have bo jackson or something like that like every once in a while you know <laughs> who literally had never pole vaulted in his life went to uh uh the state championships in in was it alabama and they're like well we don't have a pole vaulter on our track team you want to try it and then one states mm -hmm. like there's guys like that every once in a while but like it it just doesn't it's not realistic you know to expect that of 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 brewers but i don't think consumers really that's not on their radar necessarily and i think it then narrows people's focus we're in a very like narrow focused 
it, it, and it's narrowed so quickly. Um, I think it's happening on the the big beer, the big, the, the crafty side of things, and and also local. Uh, you know, the the local guys, they're down to like, you know, they make like three, four styles. You know, they'll do like the overfruited, like the hype breweries now. They'll do the overfruited. Obviously, uh, I know some people who are listening, and maybe some of the people on these breweries, like, guys, you know I, I like you, I respect you. <laughs> and I know that, yes, you'll do a Kolsch. I know that you'll do something else. But my point is, you'll do a pastry stout, you'll do an, uh, a double dry hopped IPA, double IPA, triple IPA, quadruple IPA, quintuple IPA, whatever you want to call it. And then you'll do um, an overfruited uh, IPA or, or sour or something like that. Like those are the three styles that people make now. Mm-hmm. They're all candy to me. I mean, it's all candy beer. Mm-hmm. It's flavors. Right. Yeah. They're selling flavors and selling marketing. Boom and sizzle. I, I was at Kaiser Tiger and uh, an old uh, uh, French guy, he was like, you know, super jaded. I loved him because, you know, you could, for obvious reasons. And uh, <laughs> he was sitting there drinking and uh, he used to sell high end audio equipment. And we were talking about craft beer and he was like and he and wine. And he was like, you Americans, you're all you're all boom and sizzle. I used to sell these things. I would have these perfectly tuned in full range audio systems, you know, in Europe, they, they would love it. In America, you don't want it. All you want is the deepest bass you can possibly get. And, you know, for your, I don't even know the word, but your tweeters to go as high as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want boom and sizzle. And he's like, and that's what you want with everything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's pretty amazing because I think you're exactly right. That is what Americans want. They want right. the biggest flavor. Is that sour? I want it the most sour. That has maple in it. I want it to be mostly maple extract. Mm-hmm. Extract. Um, <laughs> and now it's to the point where they don't want it real. Mm-hmm. I was talking with Aaron at Scratch Brewing, um, which is like, you know. The exact opposite oh of everything. Oh, my God. If you want me to start being positive, just bring up Scratch. Um, <laughs> we can talk about Scratch. Yeah, we can. We oh, have my too. God. But he was talking about, you know, there was a, um, a strawberry milkshake beer that had come in. And he was talking about how they had talked about doing a, well, what he was saying was like, it's not strawberry. He's so out of his mind in a great way. He's like, it's not strawberry season. And, and he's like, I don't think there's, you know, you think there's any real strawberry in that? And I was like, Aaron, first of all, I love you. You're insane. No, there's obviously not. But even more so, if, if they don't want it to taste like strawberry, they want it to taste like strawberry quick. Mm-hmm. They like they mm-hmm. don't want it to taste like a strawberry. They want it to taste like this strawberry candy from their childhood. Correct. It's all driven yeah. by nostalgia and specific <clears throat> notions of what these flavors should be. That's driven by marketing, not by what Aaron goes and picks on the property. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Which is like now you give somebody like the greatest strawberry that, you know, going back to your heirloom, you know, fruits and veggies. I mean, the sad thing is there'll be people who'll be like. You know, you make them like a, a a whole milk strawberry milkshake with like the best quality ice cream and everything <laughs> like that. And what they want is like, uh, I, I kind of like those McFlurries when they made it, when they did that, you know, crossover with Supreme and uh, Strawberry Quick. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's the best. And it's like, 
Oh man, I weep. But then yeah. again, I'm the old man who is shouting at a cloud. You know, like I'm um, um, Abe Simpson. You know, who's just like nobody cares <laughs> about that. Like I think I am kind of a dinosaur in that sense. But there, there are other dinosaurs of all ages out there with me, which is what you know keeps me going. Is, I think uh, you're in a room of dinosaurs. Yeah, here. right. Yeah, um, I, I, it, it is interesting <laughs> though, and I think that. Um, we're seeing uh, with this overlap of uh, of beer and um, the culinary world, the people like Scratch thinking of also like uh, Fonta Flora and then mm-hmm. where this all overlaps with, uh, yeah, Scratch for sure. I just noticed uh, I'm wearing a Scratch <laughs> shirt. <laughs> I thought it was intentional. Um, and then you get into where that overlaps with uh, mixed and spontaneous fermentation too with... Uh, breweries like Jester King. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that they're doing a very, very good job of trying to make some of these things relevant also. And in some cases, even with Jester King uh, putting out clean beers, I mean, they started as a clean brewery as well too. And so now they are in some way getting people that are looking for clean beer instead of convincing them that you need to drink um, Petit Prince. Petit Prince. Yeah. You can drink a pills because that's really what you want. But we have this other thing and we have an educated staff here that's going to help you. How do you feel about that? Yeah. About them making clean beer or making canned clean beer in 2020? Or... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Both of those. I'm very <laughs> interested to hear what you think. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, I mean, they started as a clean brewery, so I'm, I think that, uh, I'm not surprised to see them come this way at all. I think that in visiting there and kind of speaking with them over the years, I've been fortunate to make a couple of beers with them and I've gotten to know them. And I think it was, it was honestly probably a matter of time before they got to a point where it was like, okay, all these people that are coming in and that place is, you know, their business is probably 80 to 90% on premise. So there's people that are showing up by the busload in pre-COVID times to drink there because it's an awesome place to drink. So how can you have this educational experience with every single person that shows up? It, it, it at a certain point becomes unpragmatic. And so I think that if the quality is there and they're producing clean beers, which I have to assume that they are, I don't really think that they're undermining their other efforts towards uh, mixed uh, fermentation and spontaneous fermentation, but um, they're kind of painting the same canvas with different with different paint and with different brushstrokes as well. So let me, may I play devil's advocate? Please a do. Bit. So does that mean that every restaurant should have uh, a hamburger on the menu? You know, I mean, do you have to have that? Is that the experience that everyone has to have? And I guess, I mean, whatever. Uh, there, I'll leave it there. No, I, I'm. They don't have to. Yeah. Um. I think that Jester King held out for a pretty long time, though. Yeah. Uh, before doing that, and they made some really awesome beers, but they also realized that they have to run a business. Yeah, I think that's probably mm-hmm. what it was. I mean, yeah. my guess is that they, if they didn't. That was a, I, we have to, mm-hmm, not that right. we, we want to. And there's definitely different feels to those different things. You can almost sense the I have to versus the I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe to the general consumer, that's ir- irrelevant. That's really not the, the point. Like, 
you know, there's probably so many things, there are definitely so many things in this world that you could like dive down. I'm looking at this like really interesting um, wallpaper that you have here with like a stapler and a knife and uh, a old computer floppy disk and, and like all this like amazing stuff. Like there might be people who are, are, you know, like interior design wallpaper or wall covering snobs and stuff like that. But to me, it's like, I do not have the bandwidth to care about this. Like mm -hmm. I have my own stuff to care about. 90% of the people are like that with beer. You know, it's like, I don't care, man. It's beer. I, I want the beer I want. I don't want to be educated. Like, that's not why I'm here. I guess my question is... I think the same... I want to jump in. I yeah. think the same number of people that always want to be educated in our 2008-2009 world of styles of beer and all that, I think that the same pure number of the absolute number of those people are still out there. The thing is, is that more people are drinking craft beer. So you have people with uh, a ton of different uh, coming from like other perspectives that are coming at this and beer may not be the most important thing to them. But those people have also kind of outnumbered uh, the enthusiasts, right? So... It's a little bit like when noobs took over 4chan, like all of a sudden the whole thing changed and the focus became totally unlike what it was for the people that started or were originators of that content or that were a part of that community. And this is what happens when things get big, right? When, when metal got big or like, uh -huh. you know, it, it happens when uh, an audience gets larger and gravitates and frankly, the general public who are more marketing oriented uh, become a part of the scene, right? Well, you could throw a wrench in that though and look at the food scene. Um, food scene was super prominent in those years too and it had like this weird farm to table kind of uh, mentality to it. People were always going out to eat. I think that number has never really fluctuated yet you see a different landscape in the dining sector and so do you think that that case that you just presented is similar with dining or that well I mean no 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 yeah, no yeah. Oh, go I'm interested I have a I have a some feedback but I'd like to hear what you have to say Alexi um I want to hear you go first okay. Chris <laughs> okay yeah I haven't so I think with, with food <laughs> yeah. though yeah. I think maybe to put it in the gesture King example perspective mm -hmm. is you know the the quality might have gotten better but the types of 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 like the types of foods or or the um, the type of food that they're looking for uh, probably didn't. They probably want something that was you know either big and 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 luxurious or light and easy or you know and maybe there's you know iterations or people could change it. But I mean people want kind of the same thing from their dining experience and i think for beer that's probably the same thing too they want something that's like light and crushable now that might have gone from a bud light to a gesture king pills so it might have gotten better but they're still trying to get that same exp i don't know what to call it but they're they're looking for that same cut you know uh, that that they we're looking to scratch the same kind of itch mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. you know it's a really nice you know hand carved mahogany back scratcher now versus you know a cheap 
you know, maybe a cheapo one. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, this notion of artisanal, and like, actually, I think there's a huge difference between craft and artisanal, which is something I wanted to talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the aesthetic of artisanal just came into food at a certain point, and everyone's mm -hmm. had different ways of showing that, whether it's this, the, like, a mahogany wood charcuterie board, but... Mm -hmm. They're still putting more or less the same food that they're getting from Cisco, U.S. Foods, and yeah. all of that onto it. So then it becomes about, right. okay, oh. what are the people dressed as that are showing right. up? What is the oh interior looking like? Do they have the fancy, like, hanging lights that mm -hmm. are on black? Like, it, it, again, it's, it, it comes back to how everything's plated and presented. Right. Can I give my favorite example of, 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 of an outsider from the restaurant world who... You know, I have little kids. I don't eat out all that often, but anymore. But one, this development, I, I just, I love it, was the very first time I went to a restaurant and they were using like the, the, the kitchen towels as the napkin. I was like, ooh, this is weird. It's like, seems very like, you know, um, um, you know, maker oriented and it's, you know, it's real. And then uh, I noticed everyone started doing it. And then there was like fine like like high quality cloth versions and then those for the back of house dining like they were very rough and they had like a blue usually stripe down them right mm -hmm. and it's like wow they're just using the same towels for the guests and stuff like that and then they started having definitely front of house high quality white towels with a blue stripe around them and now it's come all the way full circle where i've gone to places that have disposable paper towels that are white with a blue stripe on them. And it's like, you got, it's like, it's, it's comical. It's, but it doesn't matter because it's just, it's just the look. Mm -hmm. It's somebody came in and said, we can make a killing if we start doing this and then selling it to people and stuff like that. But like, again, to the end consumer, some of them probably are just like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, that is a, that's, it's the look that's cool. Mm-hmm. And, I think that, well, yeah. and, and this totally ties back into the marketing of craft beer in 2022 and the role of Instagram. And yeah. it's the same thing in food, too, right? Like it's, it's all about there's the a leader, social there, media, there's social media and the visual context of it. It's not about what you're consuming. It's about what it looks like you're doing and what you're consuming. Mm -hmm. And there is a leader that is doing that there are several highly influential restaurateurs or breweries or whatever the fuck and they are doing something specific or they get wind of something mm -hmm. and then everyone follows or they see something someone else is doing and they and they grab it and make it theirs i think a good example of that was when i worked at frontier and we were one of the first people to do wild game and then whole animals too i wouldn't give it more than six months after that place opened everyone every restaurant had some exotic game meat had some form of like a whole animal kind of service anyone who was kind of like that restaurant and it was just like man it's a follow the leader kind of game i mean that that's something that has happened at, at my shop with a, a couple like small inconsequential ultimately things um but um yeah i mean i what i learned from that was uh when we when we moved we moved like two doors down. We expanded. 
a few things that I wanted to do was specifically innovate in ways that people, if you want to copy, buck up. And, and I'm not telling you how I did it, you know, because there were other things I did out of like, you know, just creativity or, or laziness or something like that. And they were just so easy to replicate that people did because you know what? I had, a, I had a good idea and other people have good ideas too. I mean, good ideas are bountiful. So the stuff is going to get taken. The The shame of it in like the, 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 the whole animal type thing is, you know, why were you guys doing like presuming that you guys were doing it for specific reasons other than pure marketing and then for it to be taken over and just stripped of all its meaning. That's, that's the worst. Uh, I haven't had that really happen with any of the things that I've done, but they're also, you know, not as important as, as that. But. Well, I, I think uh -huh. that there are things that um, that the Beer Temple has pushed that are good things that should be copied, right? Totally. Like having a very large cold stored area, having slightly more dimmed lights in the bottle area in general. And so specific that, types of lights and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Yeah, those are good things. And, um, you know, I think that uh, also, like different uh cold storage for your kegs is is um mm -hmm. the only i don't know many places that do that outside of maybe i know motor lambic in belgium has done that for a while mm -hmm. but i think it, tourist or there's some places that do it but i think some places adjust their temperature in line mm -hmm. which maybe is just the smarter way that i should have done it and just have different things come out at different temperatures i was like nah i want to pay for two different compressors two different cold rooms two different glycol <laughs> units two different and you know, that's, that's the cost of, uh, not knowing what you're doing, but knowing what you want to do. Well, I, no, I mean, I think it mm -hmm. is the knowing what you want to do, but it's about uh, a slightly undefined road to get there. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 I mean, that's what you're doing when you're just creating it. I mean, our, our cold room, um, it's funny, like our, our accountant gave us a, a research and development tax credit for doing it because we literally invented what what we wanted because it didn't exist and it took me a long fucking time to figure out how to do it and i'm not going to say on the air how we figured it out mostly because even if i did nobody's gonna care but all i'll say is we have a cold room that is quiet and has music and and everything like that and it was supposed to just be a seamless transition from the non-cold room to the cold room and um that's that's not easy to do because I love beer caves, but they're the worst shopping experience. They're like metal boxes with mm -hmm. huge blowers in your face. Yep, that sucks. Yeah, you don't want to feel like you're walking into a no. walk-in as a as a consumer. Right, and the I, noise is another thing that I think people don't think about, but they realize they want to get out of there a little bit sooner. You know, so it's like a subconscious thing. I want you to be more comfortable in there. Browse, take a look at it better lit and i think audio a lot of it is like i don't want to hear the big blowers and we do have sometimes you know our blowers have to kick on and stuff like that uh depending on the the situation um but the idea is you walk in and it's cold and quiet and mm -hmm. there's that's that's hard to do i i, I found out i will mm -hmm. say it's and something... i was told five six seven times by professionals like this is what i do you cannot do this and i was like <laughs> 
Well, I'm going to figure out how to do it. There you <laughs> go. It's no, something I'm sorry I to interrupt never, you. No, you're good. I, I never really noticed that when I do walk into cold beer caves until I walked into the beer temple and I was like, that's I, work, I think that's I was the, with you, honestly. That's the fault of working in restaurants, though. <laughs> well, totally. Is that, that all of a sudden that doesn't seem like, but for a normal person. Right. But yeah. I, I remember walking in with you, I think it was, Alexi, and I was like, it's quiet and it's cold. What's going on here right now? Like, Love this it. is cool. It's Love awesome. It. But, like, it's not something I feel like a lot of people just consciously recognize. My hope either. is that they just have a, a more enjoyable experience, and they, 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 don't ever, they don't ever, ever need to know why. They just yeah. need to know that. Same thing with, like, keeping our beer cold all the time. You know, we did a, a test where we had, we took some beer from the same brewery from the same dates, and we would bring it in every, like, two weeks. We'd bring in another, like, four-pack of it, and we'd keep one warm and one cold. And then we tasted them all blind, the cold stored and the warm stored. And just, like, it was eye-opening for people because the older beer tasted better than the younger beer if it was if it had been kept cold. Mm -hmm. So because we were big on freshness when we opened because nobody knew about it. I got a lot of shit from distributors for it. And from me, too. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, rem I remember sitting at Haymarket, and you were telling me specifically that I want people to know exactly the package date, and I was trying to convince you the breweries and the wholesalers don't want you to know that. Oh, which, is, which was true. Some of the brewers, the wholesalers, absolutely. So I was fighting with it, and shout out to Perennial and, and, and Phil and Emily Wymore, they had, they were the first ones who had my back with that and pushed back against their distributor. I wasn't even open yet. So it wasn't like I was a good customer. It was my first drop and they got behind me and stood by me and I will forever be thankful to them because they stood up to their distributor and said, this guy I've never heard of is right. You're wrong. And take our beer back, take our beer out of his store. Mm -hmm. That's amazing, especially at the time. Like you have to remember at the time, I was I was regularly sending back a quarter of my beer delivery every week, which is crazy. But um, now people think that freshness it's it's gotten like hyper. So now I'm doing like freshness pushback in a way. It's like if a beer is older than two weeks, that's not necessarily bad. Sierra Nevada at two months is probably better than most beers of a similar style after one month. It's probably better after three months than many are at one month. I mean, their bottling technology is world class. So there's a lot. It, it, so dates are, yes, that's the most important. But then you start getting into the subtleties of it. Like, how is the beer stored? How, you know, how is it canned? How is it packaged, rather? Mm -hmm. You know, because people would say, you know, you know, a, a, a three-month-old, or I'm sorry, a three-week-old or two-week-old beer that was canned locally on like a two-head hand-filled filler is better than a six-week-old Firestone Walker, you know, Union Jack or something like that. And I'm like, listen, that's it. No, no, <laughs> it's that's not going to be the case. I mean, we're all Lagunitas, you know. They have a million-dollar bottling line. It's not to fill it faster, man. It ain't just so they can fill it faster. It's so there's it, it holds up better. That's why it costs so much. And that's such 
a more complicated discussion to have and one that is more complicated it, it, it's above the threshold of people's giving a fuck mm-hmm. rightfully so yeah but what i hope getting back to it is maybe it's subconscious my hope is that they realize that when they buy the i'll just use, use firestone walker and probably a bad example but union jack when they buy union jack from my place and buy it from somewhere else it just tends to taste better or the beers when i get them there but the hoppy beers they tend to taste better. Sometimes they taste like gross when I buy them somewhere else, or uh, even if it doesn't get to that level of consciousness. Just uh, that's what I'm hoping is is our the work we're putting in on the back end uh, from our buying and our storing and and stuff like that and curation, not having too mm-hmm. much, knowing what our velocity is for each style, will benefit us in the long run because people trust us. The, the greatest thing is we used to have our, our dates on all the packages. We do that so much less than we used to because, one, people trust us now. They trust us. I had a guy who said, I used to look under the can, uh, under the bot, um, always check the dates. I'd always check the dates or look under the can. When I come in here, I don't do it. And mm-hmm. that, to me, was such yep. a huge compliment because it's like, I trust you guys. But now that's on us to, you know, not betray that trust right. and, and keep it going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It sounds like you're a pretty creative person if you're coming up with, uh, <laughs> I think you're selling your creativity a little bit short here. Uh-huh. So, okay, there's this guy in Sweden who I met, um, I think this was in like Southeast Sweden, and he didn't drink alcohol, but he was an expert on Coca-Cola from a sensory standpoint. So he got Coca-Cola sent to him from all over the world and he would taste it because depending Coca-Cola is bottled locally in Mm -hmm. uh, everywhere. everywhere. And so there's different sugar that goes into it. I think that's one of the biggest things. And there's a little bit of a variation based on what is deemed as like, uh, like local taste or cultural, like cultural aspects too. And mm-hmm. he was saying that the Coca-Cola in Malaysia was the best because there's a specific aspect to the sugar and there's something about the local. And this is like super duper subjective, right? This is what one dude in <laughs> Southeast Sweden Love felt it. in 2006. But, right. <laughs> but uh, there are these kinds of people that are that approach things that way and that um, definitely can you can take something like Coca-Cola, which is like as we were saying, our imagined stalwart of what commercial right. soda pop is, right? Mm-hmm. But it can taste different anywhere based on, uh, because this company said we don't need it to taste exactly the same everywhere, but uh, we're gonna believe in our branding that red and white and the font and everything, that's gonna be what gets people to understand that it's Coca-Cola and then it's gonna taste uh, reminiscently similar. But it can't be the same everywhere. The European Union has different regulations about what can go in the soda pop than the United States, for example. The sugars are different. The local sensibilities are different. It would be like the most impossible task everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also heard that, uh, well, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Apparently the, the, the recipe for Coke is still like... It is somewhere. It's in a, it's in a, a safe or a vault probably. And like only a few people in the world have access to the actual full recipe. And I've heard that they like, you know, with like high, 
uh, security, like governmental technology, like they'll farm out like every piece so nobody knows what the entire thing is. <laughs> it's like chartreuse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like I've heard, yeah. Well, man, if chartreuse is doing it, then I mean, you know, Coke is probably too. Like they don't want anybody <laughs> being able to copy it. Uh -huh. um, yeah, there was a big, there was a, a podcast about somebody trying to recreate the the recipe, and it was essentially impossible intentionally. I, I get why, but uh, yeah, I don't know where I don't know where I was getting with that. Uh, oh, I, I do know how I can bring it back to uh, beer, though. You know how you're saying that Coke uh, can't taste the same all over the world because it's made in different places. For that reason, I mean, it it, it kind of is like this um, like cliche thing to say, but you know, for that reason, Budweiser, Bud Light, uh, specifically in a way is is the most kind kind of amazing brewing technological feat that there is i mean those guys are amazing because a lot of people don't know you know coors is made in one place all coors comes out of one brewery it's a giant brewery bud light comes out of i don't even know how many just in the state i mean i think it's all made in the states but it's like eight breweries or there's a lot and it all tastes the same like from a brewing standpoint that's that's like an impossibility to, to do that. And, you know, say what you will about what the end product is, but there's not a lot to hide behind in terms of flavor and for them all to taste the same, that if you open up a Bud Light and you got guys who are drinking, you know, I'm a Bud Light guy, you know, and they've been drinking nothing but Bud Light and they go to California and then they go to Texas and then they go to New York City and all three Bud Lights taste the same to them, it, it's almost impossible, you know, um, we need to have your Swedish guy. We need to have someone who is a Bud Light aficionado who can <laughs> blind say which brewery it came from. Like, oh, that's the Newark brewery, you know. Yeah. Be, I, I'd love to actually see someone do that. I think we, yeah, we need to, uh, yeah, we'll, we need to figure that out. That would be so cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. I've only done like a blind Bud Light slash Miller test. We did like a, something at Frontier. They were like, Oh, do a blind tasting of Miller and Bud, but it was more like which one has more flavor, right? Right. You know, but yeah, that that would be that's so way cool. more practical. <laughs> yeah, that's way more practical totally. than like here are seven <laughs> of the same beer from different breweries. <laughs> can you tell the difference for no actual like marketable reason? Just mm -hmm. can you? But mm -hmm. That's the sort of stuff that gets me. Well, I mean, there's got to be someone deep in QC at AB that, or a, oh, a totally. or at least a department of people that are tasked specifically with finding those congruencies or uh, inequities between the yeah. beers and yeah. figuring out why. It's it's fascinating. So they do blending. That's how they get it. That's how they dial it in. They also ship stuff from all the different breweries and like they all compare them and stuff like that. And then they even do um, like cryogenic freezing mm -hmm. and then they'll bring it back. Like I was talking with Mike Miller to see how like Jim Beam tastes like. They'll do that to see if there's any um, creep over the course of not months, but like years. You know, is this still Bud Light as we want it to be? So sometimes they want to change it, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Because, because of, you know, I think the bitterness and stuff has definitely gone come down in, in bud, bud heavy or whatever you want to call it over time. Mm -hmm. But they want to make sure that it's not, that it's an intentional shift, you know? Like, this is Bud Light from whatever year it is. This is Bud Light now. Like, are we getting kind of slow creep 
uh, from from a flavor perspective, which is, I mean, they've got a lot riding on the flavor of that thing, but it is from a from a brewing uh, expertise standpoint. I mean, it's no one can kind of touch. I think that ability because because brewing, when you come down to it, it's it's the ability to. There's always exceptions, you know. I'm thinking of like Phantom. I'm already thinking of exceptions before I said what I'm talking about. But it's all about can you replicate what you're trying to do? Like anyone can <clears throat> stumble into a great beer, but can you make it again and have it be just as good? Um, and that's what, what brewing is really, from a commercial standpoint, all about. Unless you're artisanal or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it versus craft. So sure, mm-hmm. absolutely, and. The focus of the of a company like Bud is they need the consistency of the product to match all that marketing money that they put into it too. Absolutely. Yep. Um, let's dive into what yeah, we've been we, drinking. Yeah, let's drink. Let's drink a little more. Yeah. Do we have uh, do we have a little more of the? I think we got a little left for you right there. Yep. Yep. Okay. I have some for of me, that. For uh, and then the dogfish. We open one more. Why not? Okay. Here we go. I'll just gulp down the last of that LaCroix that I dumped into there. So I'm going to be pardoning myself as I burp into the mic. <laughs> I'm already saying it, it's, it's, it's bound to happen. Ooh, nice. There you go. My clink for the day. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I've gotten a clink yet. I know I clinked your you're mic. De- you're destined yeah. for one. Yeah. <laughs> clink, I clinked yours with my Yeah, elbow. the booms are new to get used to. Um, yeah. Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about you? You highlighted earlier that Dogfish Head was uh, an important brand for you. I think for anyone that grew up in the uh, in the Mid Atlantic, Dogfish Head was an important uh, brand for them. Uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, pumpkin ale. This is uh, yeah, well, pumpkin pumpkin ale as they call it, uh, P U N K I N. I guess maybe because it's you would think maybe because it's like punk. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually isn't. That's not why it's called it. Because there's this thing in Delaware called pumpkin chunkin that they do every year. I don't know if you've heard about this, where they they take pumpkins and they make contraptions to just launch them as far as they can. Um, and it started out as like this thing they would do in like a a, a cornfield. Um, I think they would do it on I forget what day it, it it might be like on Thanksgiving Day or on I forget what it was and. Um, you know they would they would go to this thing it was just they had i think they had to stop doing it because like they started making these they look like battleship cannons by the end so they have like different versions trebuchets and stuff like that but like somebody like you know like four thousand feet away was like killed by a pumpkin something like that <laughs> like something terrible happened <laughs> like because these things just like <laughs> it's amazing uh so that's what it's named after this crazy um uh, you know, like home engineered, you know, people who was like literal rocket scientists would like drive to Delaware and be like, all right, I made this, you know, trebuchet and I'm going to like whip it around and throw this <laughs> pumpkin a mile. <laughs> um, and um, so that's what it's named after anyway. Uh, but Dogfish Head, definitely one of the first uh, uh, local craft beers uh, that I had. Um, certainly, I think the first one I ordered at a bar, just because, again, branding, they had that shark, and I was like, ooh, that's that's crafty, that's micro, I want to, well, craft wasn't even a term, that's micro, I want to try that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, 
I just kind of dig what, what they were and still to some degree are about, which is trying to be, what do they say, off-centered ales or off-centered people. I think for someone who, who's gotten as big as Dogfish has, they've stayed truer to that than almost any other brewery, I'd say. Um, this is, uh, that said, this is, uh, yeah, it's a pumpkin beer. Um, this was the beer I think that I was drinking when I decided to like make a concerted effort to learn more about craft beer. Um, that's why I brought it. You said bring something that was kind of important to you from before you opened up beer temple. Mm -hmm. Um, this is the one, uh, not because it was an exceptionally amazing beer, although it's a good beer. Mm -hmm. Um, but this was like the beer that I had in, in my hand when I was like, huh, there's something, this is cool. Um, yeah, it's a pumpkin beer. Uh, uh one of the, you know, OG original American styles of beer, pumpkin beer, you know, they think that that's like a new fangled style, but it's, it goes back to the, you know, colonial time when they ran out of grain. Uh, they didn't have any more grain. They needed beer. So they started using fruits and stuff like that. And, and pumpkin beer is uh is what they did they used to actually use fresh pumpkin rather than just puree in uh pumpkin ale i don't know if that's still the case um and then now because it if it says pumpkin it has to taste like pumpkin pie because people think of baking spice when they think of pumpkin now uh mm -hmm. they certainly you know spice it a little bit mildly but just kind of a nice uh amber beer on a 100 degree chicago day you know mm -hmm. exactly what everyone wants to be drinking the pumpkin spice latte beer it's pretty it's definitely not that. i think this beer is uh i have uh i have a little bit of a history with this beer as well like i mean i remember this was one of the first pumpkin beers that i had personally as well and to me uh when i first had this beer it was an explosion of pumpkin i don't know if this is my palate or experientially uh, not having experienced that in the context of beer, but to me, all I could taste when I first had this beer, you know, the better part of 10 plus years ago, was more than that, but, uh, was that there was this explosion of flavor. Um, it still looked like a beer though. Uh, it looked yeah. like a golden beer or like a pale beer. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it had all these flavors that I would associate with something that looks very different than it. So I, I, I definitely, um, that was an interesting, an interesting kind of experience. Fat, fast, uh, fast forward to now. I mean, when we look at this in comparison to all of the other pumpkin beers that are out there and then the whole world of adjunct beers in general, yeah. I mean, this beer could fall flat for some consumers because it's you know less spice than this pumpkin spice latte business that you that they experience and associate right. with that it's less than most po commercial pies which, are, uh -huh. which is like another kind of like commercial point that people would use as a reference um but it looks like a beer it still has malt profile to it it has spice i mean i don't know if it's more or less spiced than when it was first made mm -hmm. um but you could recognize it as a beer as much as an adjunct beer too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Especially now when you have beers that are literally meant to taste not like beer, like the intent is that you think you are drinking a chocolate sundae and I'm not using the for people out there who may not know 
that's not hyperbole. There are breweries who want you to be drinking a blueberry pie or a, you know, pick, pick, pick what it is, a, a jelly donut, um, you know, stuff like that. Like they're trying to give you that, you know, that, that jam, maybe some doughiness, some, uh, you know, confectioner's sugar. They want it to taste like a liquid jelly donut, which is perhaps novel, but no one, you know, I, I highly doubt that 30 years from now, you know, you're going to have a 51 year old man, um, who's going to be like, ah, I'm a jelly donut beer, man. That's just what I drink. <laughs> you don't got it. I ain't drinking at your bar. You know, I mean, it's just, you're not going to have that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, I certainly hope so. And I hope I'm there when that is uttered because, <laughs> you know, it'll just be, you know, another a little highlight in my life along with the, the, uh, going to view Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Hopefully that happens on the same trip. And yeah. then I can be like, well, that's it. I'm just going to sit in my chair and wait to die now. Happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I also brought in a, uh, a formative beverage too. Um, I did not have the exact formative beverage, so I brought in uh, what I had that was most similar. Uh, so for me, the formative beverage was from uh, Stroisa, a brewery in Belgium. Uh, they produce predominantly very strong, uh, rich beers. Um, mostly they're known for their darker expressions, but they do a number of different things as well on the sour spectrum. Um, tons of sto unique stories about the brewery itself. Uh, the One of the owners, Urbane, is a very... Uh, eccentric individual mm -hmm. really uh very talented brewers there um and for me uh one of the more formative beers that got me to think outside of what is hoppy or what is a pale light lager was this beer called panapot uh which is uh it's not really a belgian quadruple uh it's really it has some aspects of a quad but it also has some characteristics of a stout to it's really kind of lacks categorization, which is Belgian, which is Belgian. That's and that's what Belgian beer is, man. Like true Belgian mm -hmm. beer. It lacks, it, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. What type of beer is it? It's Panapot. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, I think what they were trying to do when they said in a way they don't believe in flagships, but Panapot would be that if anything, because it is that distinctive profile and it is a beer that has, uh, a big, rich cereal quality and has a lot of dark fruit profile. And so for me, drinking that at uh, at local option was a very special, and that was before I worked there, but as a customer, I mean, that was a delightful experience drinking some of the first like Panapot kegs that were shipped to the US. Uh, I was totally blown away by that. And that sparked a huge interest in Belgian beers. And uh, as we were talking about earlier, just exploring all these styles of beer from all over the world and who are these cultures that or where are these cultures from and who are these individuals that are making these beers um all of that dovetailed with my studies in history and political science as well um <laughs> but what we have in front of us is is cool it's a uh, it's an expression of panapot uh the uh it's the res uh, the grand reserve so it's a special panapot that is only bottled a cup every couple of years mm -hmm. it's the panapot that's aged i think it's two years in bourbon and it's finished 
uh, I don't have, we have a 2018, which I couldn't find a ton of information about the specific bottling of this, but right. historically it is finished for 10 months on Calvados barrels as well, differentiating it from the reserve and differentiating it from the non-barrel aged. But to me, I think uh, with beers like this, they have such strong and unique flavors that they come from a time where a brewery is trying to create like you could argue that this is a dessert in a glass in a way, in a way, mm -hmm. but the construction of this beverage is totally different from a yeah. uh, like a, a lactose adjunct beer. Mm -hmm. In this case, the uh, the producer is using uh, you know American oak and uh, apple brandy barrels to impart this like dark fruit cake uh, character atop like this already rich uh, quad inspired beer. It's it's really fun, and I think one of the things that struck me was that it was like exactly like all these fruits and pies and all these like delicious desserts but it was organic tasting and the construction of it was super rich and when i look uh at beers nowadays that have lactose and have all these things these beers are constructed in a way that is totally different and I wonder if people are going to be able to enjoy them in the future as they can with something like this, because the foundation of those beers is, uh, isn't all grain. It's right. artificial. It's right? artificial. I mean, they're using yeah. extracts. Um, I mean, all these maple beers and stuff like that, like you can't get that flavor from actual maple syrup. You have to use maple extract. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, that's just what people do now. They, they dump a bunch of extract in there, which is, I don't know. I mean, uh, talking about, I mean, I mean, we could have a discussion, maybe not with, uh, with the three of us, because we're all, it sounds like more of the same mind, but the discussion we were having with, you know, the, uh, the designation of Lambic versus is it good, is it bad, should there be, I mean, I would say the same thing about these, like, extract beers. Yeah. is is it is it good i mean is is there intrinsic goodness in a flavor like can something not be as good because it's artificial and comes out of a a thing of extract you know mm -hmm. i don't know i mean i think there's it, it probably is is personal um, I, I'm not going to sit there and say that, you know, uh, a champion debater could not, you know, talk me into a corner where I could not defend myself, but it's, it's, to me, it matters. It matters why you did what you did. Um, and it, it's not even the fact that you can't use extract. It's just, why did you use extract? Is it because... And then, yeah, I just want to know, it's the same thing I was talking about with looking at somebody's beer list. Like, what is the thought process behind it? Why did you do what you did? And if it was because, you know, I don't know. I mean, even, even like, so Omnipollo, right? They, like, I defend them often, not always. Uh, they make the most insane Pastry, I mean, they they probably invented the milkshake IPA. That Hilma was probably like a proto-milkshake. I think it's it's mutated beyond that. It was a, a burger, fries, and milkshake IPA, right? Just mm -hmm. sounds disgusting. You drink the beer, it's actually subtle, nuanced, fun, 
like silly, um, but but it's good. Um, it's it's very like very light on the vanilla. It has a little bit of that kind of like buttered bun thing. There's no hamburger in it. And then, you know, they probably put some fries in there and maybe you get some kind of that like potato thing go maybe maybe i don't really get the fries in there they i think they might put some salt in it or something i don't know but it's uh it's thought through they thought about what they want to do it it might have just been like it might have even been like this will sell we're gonna put like the mcdonald's like happy meal <laughs> thing on it and it's gonna be crazy maybe that's all it is but but then like you know you also have people who are then literally you know, I have a love, hate, not a love hate relationship. I have an on again, off again relationship with Evil Twin, where I think sometimes, and it's gone way beyond them, they'll just literally do a beer for the photo op of me putting fried chicken into a brew kettle, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, and it's, it's, it's gone even like worse than that now, I think, where it's like, okay, sometimes I think it's like, okay, we need to have an Instagram picture of a beer with literally a Sunday on it and then just make a beer that allows us to do that. Like it's what it, I'm, I'm sure it's literally not like that, but that's what it seems like to me. It's like, we want it to look like a Dairy Queen blizzard. We're going to mm-hmm. make a Dairy Queen blizzard beer. And to me, it's like, why don't you just go get a blizzard? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, do you want to drink beer or I mean, I'm going to, well, I got to be careful, but it's like, what, what are we, are we children? Like, what, what, what the fuck are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Like, come on. <laughs> Why are we selling things that are for children to people that are 21 and over? Right. Uh-huh. I, I, including, like, this whole, like, 8-bit video game, like, uh, artwork that's now on on uh, uh, the labels. And, 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 and they're just... And, and the IP theft, which is now a thing, and it is a known thing where it's they're trying to do it they're stealing nostalgic images they know that they make their batches so small that by the time the c and d comes it'll say cease all production of it it's already all out there it's already all sold and they just are on to the next one there are biggish breweries at least culturally who are using this? They're knowing they're they're stealing IP of sometimes not just like they're probably too they're smart enough to like not mess with Disney or Coke because like they'll ruin you, <laughs> but like because they don't care. Um, but but other guys who are maybe a like a Topo Chico, I don't know how big Topo Chico is, but like a, a company who's like they're still a company that uh, is isn't like mammoth, and they're not going to come after you. But you're just stealing their identity for like cheap thrills. I don't know. I just to me that is, and it's also with these beers that are so unoriginal, so just you're putting finished food products in your beer. So like you're taking, uh, you know, your label looks like a Snickers. You literally have Snickers in it. You're not trying to make it taste like a Snickers. This isn't the the Hilma on the Pollo thing where you're trying to make it taste like a Happy Meal or a, a McDonald's meal. You're you're just putting Snickers in your beer. Mm-hmm. Literally. It's putting Snickers in your beer. It's like, why? Right. It's it's opting other people's ideas and making it your own. And so right. what does that say of your identity 
that you yeah. have no originality. You're just derivative, man. You're just derivative. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing. And there. fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Why, like, I make make your money. Do all that stuff. Do what you want to do. At least be true to the fact that you are derivative. Well, then, yeah. then I'll I'll respect you. Then, mm-hmm. like, I'll respect you for what you're doing. I won't respect. I don't know. They'll they'll be like a like you know. All right, respect. You suck, but whatever. Like but, it'll be at least like that. <laughs> but it really shows how uncreative these people are because everyone knows what a Snickers is, right? It's chocolate. It's peanut butter, and it's a little wafer bar. Why why can't you just make that into your beer? Why why, why do you have to throw Snickers in? Well, why, it's, it's like, going back to that scratch discussion. Like, it, like, do you think that really tastes like strawberry? No, Aaron, they don't want it to taste like strawberry. They want it to taste like strawberry quick. Mm-hmm. They don't want it to be a constructed Snickers. They want Snickers in it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, that's what they want. Um, and it just goes crazy. I mean, there's, you know, some of these, uh, I think Nintendo uh, uh, sent out like a, um, a C&D on uh, The Answer or The Veil or one of those Virginia breweries for these tekus they had with like Mega Man art on it. Literally just stolen Mega Man, the pixelated stuff. The glasses sell now for hundreds of dollars. Mm-hmm. The people are so, we've had a few, fucking stupid. <laughs> you have a blank Teku right here in my hand. How much does this possibly cost? You can make them. Make the fucking glass if you want it. Mm-hmm. It'll cost you 10 bucks. Like mm-hmm. you people. Uh, then again, no, but, Simpson. <laughs> no, but I think that that's uh, that's they stole it. Yeah, they stole it. Just steal it too. Ex- exactly <laughs> right. Uh, how original? How original can you get? Right. I wanted to uh, talk about a couple of kind of uh, contemporary or like current uh, things that I've seen in the beer world, and I wanted to know a little bit of your uh, perspective on them. Um, the n- These two, I think, kind of go hand in hand together, and they are uh, local to Chicago, but I think uh, our listeners elsewhere can tr- extrapolate something from them, and that is um, the news of breakthrough acqui- uh, of breakthrough selling its uh, cider and beer portfolio to Lakeshore, which is the AB house here in Chicago. Uh, breakthrough being a wine and liquor wholesaler probably had no business being in beer in the first time, but in the first place, and you know, probably weren't as successful with it. But uh, it was, I guess, when you have that kind of money, you just throw it around and take on stuff like that and see if it works. And then on the other side of it, uh, and on the other side of this, you have uh, two companies owned by Reyes Holdings, Windy City uh, and Chicago Beverage. Uh, and this is probably less of a big thing, but more of a melding of operations. No, it's it's big. Yeah, it's big. So what what's your perspective on this as a as a kind of a re- as a retailer and as an insider in the industry? I alluded to it earlier in the show, but I think it's bad. I think it's it's bad. I think that the big guys are getting more consolidated. And I think um, that the little guys are just kind of maybe not putting up the, the, the fight I feel they should or fighting the way I feel they should. Um, I, I certainly don't think it's good for the three-tier system, which might be good or bad. Um, I mean, I have a lot of, of, of thoughts about this. I think 
I had this realization long ago that the big breweries and the big distributors feared craft beer because of the options. They could not keep up with the number of options that there, that there was. Um, you know, trying to con- control a thousand Q skew rather set is, is not possible. You know, a thousand different beers is what that this kind of means, but, um, they want to control it. They want to limit how much option, how many options you have. And I think they, uh, long story short, I, I, they won. I think big beer won. Um, I think this craft beer rev- revolution, it, um, is, you know, it's now, they call it the long tail, you know? So you've got like the, the 90% of the beer is going to be sold by these few. And then the next 10% will be a very, you know, steep curve and a very long, you know, the, then the final 0.1% is going to be spread out across 7,000 breweries, you know? So that's fine. You guys can do that. You can be the innovative, the thought leaders and stuff like that. You leave when it gets big for us to kind of push volume. Um, and I think that's exactly what's happened. I think that's what's happened through the uh, acquisition of, of established craft beer brands. Um, I think that's just how probably now, you know, how business kind of goes. Um, and I think from the distribution side, now they're consolidating that. So you have breakthrough. Um, so like, the, so what happened was like breakthrough was one distributor. Lakeshore bought all the the rights to all their beer. What's the big deal? This the beer still available, right? Wrong. It's it's not because what will happen? It might be available today, but that book, like you can only push so much, right? You're not going to now. They're not going to double the amount of beer that they sell. Let's say that the book they bought, it's not, was was equal size to what Lakeshore, who bought Breakthrough's portfolio. Let's say they each had equal size portfolios. They're not going to double what they do. Let's say it goes up by 50%, which it won't. That other, like, they have to, um, I think really what they're going to do is just, they're not growing the pie. They're just going to take a bigger slice of the pie. They're going to, take some key accounts from that book and then the others will just suppress. They're just going to suppress it. So it's not, it's, it's, it's now, it's not competition. Oof. Thank God. I don't have to fight for that tap handle anymore. I'm just gonna, we're just not gonna, we'll keep the rights to it. That's the other thing. These breweries, you know, a lot of them, they can eat, they can get out, but who, who are you going to go to? Reyes also just consolidated. So their books are overstuffed. They don't have anywhere to go. You're going to go there and be the fifth option of for whatever style you're trying to push. Like, so like, all right, you don't go anywhere. So you're either officially out of the market. You're with a tiny boutique operation, which may work for just a handful. Mm-hmm. Or you are stuck, man. You are now pinned and you in this state, you cannot get out of that, that agreement. If you do not leave in the, in the, the in 30 days, you are locked in until the distributor says, 
we don't want you anymore. And why would a distributor ever say we don't want you? Because then you go somewhere else and become the competition. We have you right under our thumb right now. I don't want you going anywhere, right? They'd rather kill you in their own house than let you go somewhere else. Yep. Hell yeah, it happens all the time. Here's the other thing. What if you're a small operation who's making sour beers, and then they bring in a bigger operation who's making fruited sour beers, like happened with, I don't know, Unane and Breakthrough. Mm-hmm. It almost put Unane out of business when that happened, and they wouldn't let him go. Finally, he put up, like, it made, like, we all were, like, applauding this guy, Jerry, because he finally managed to get out from under it. But it's, that is the exception to the rule. So the more choices you have, the higher up the ladder in at your individual distributor you will be. You will have more face time and stuff like that. What other people are now saying is, like, well, then you got to do self-distro, which is fine. You can distribute yourself, but you're only going to be able to go so far with that, I think. The other thing is people are saying is that's hard. So what they do is then they go to, they open their tap rooms and they do own premise rather than on premise. You know, there's off premise, which is where you take the beer and you go off the premise to drink it. There's on premise, which is where you drink it on the premise that you bought it, on the premises that you bought it. And then there's own premise, which is kind of not a real thing, but it's like the breweries are are where they're selling it directly to the consumer, which was not allowed, you know, until fairly recently, legally. Um, I think that's good. I think it's, you know, having tap rooms, I think is vital to the health of these breweries, but they were not supposed to be retail operations originally. But, you know, they've pushed and lobbied to kind of expand it because it's incredibly profitable to sell beer that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps their cash flow too. Right. Huge. I think it's huge for that. But overall, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't know. I mean, maybe it is beneficial. It's beneficial if if you're just trying to get into Target and stuff like that and Mariano's and stuff like that. It's certainly not beneficial to the the craft beer temples of the world. Um, um, It's just, you know, because what's happened now is, you know, a lot of our sales used to be like these limited releases, special releases and stuff like that none of that sees distribution now that's mm-hmm. all going to people standing in line out front of my place i want that which I, it's your beer i get that you want to do it but you know i mean don't expect me to stand behind all your other stuff then like why the hell should i do that and then if i'm not doing it then if i think if enough people wake up then like what are you you're a target brand who who has a line out in front of you every once in a while. Maybe that's what people want, but I don't think that that's, and maybe that's where the consumer base is going, you know? But that's not, I think, what you and I, Alexi, are, like, down with. Like, that's not what we are interested in, like. No, I mean, I think that in the world where, uh, where that we kind of come from people were going to bars to experience beers and to get one-off things or to um even stores i mean where i came from was very much you go to this bar and you drink it on draft and that was part of the specialty of it was that we worked our tails off to get this one keg and we strangled christian and shelton brothers to get this one keg (laughs) or we followed this beer from belgium on shipping trackers to get it here or built a special relationship with this brewery to have them fill barrels for us when 
it made no financial sense for them in comparison to filling it in cans and selling it to the beer temple or mm-hmm. to uh, other or to uh, anywhere else. And so I think like now with locality being a focus, it's a little bit it's a little bit different. Uh, at first, when those places didn't have uh, own premise or they weren't selling on their own premises, it was all about getting beers to people uh, like you, for example, or to places like Local Option because they didn't have expertise in being a retailer. But now they do. Now we can argue whether they have expertise in being a retailer, but they, they still have success a, in it. They have success, um, but they are also their function is as a producer, not a retailer. Right. And so um, I think that I can imagine that that makes it more challenging as a retailer. And certainly if you're looking at it from an on-premise standpoint with the COVID regulations as well and everything going around there, then it's harder to even be at capacity theoretically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, it certainly makes it harder. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. If I was a big brewery, or a big uh, brewing interest or a big distributor, I'd love own premise. Now it is cutting into, I think their craft sales and some of them are kind of complaining about that. And, you know, I think, you know, tap rooms being the cool new thing, that's gonna, it's not gonna be around forever. Eventually they're just gonna be another type of bar. There's the sports bar, there's the tap room, there's the cocktail bar whatever um so yeah i mean that's just they'll make their own beer there it'll be like the brew pubs and and stuff like that but you're not gonna be able to grow outside of that if you want to maybe that's been locked down so much now that it's not possible to really grow that big anymore you're not going to get the sierra nevadas anymore uh that's just not possible to to do or, or increasingly difficult to do um well, if you take Sierra Nevada and you take New Belgium and you take all of those breweries that are in that top 10 or 15 largest craft breweries in the U.S., and then let's look like a layer below that into what we would call like regional breweries or um, breweries that were too late in the game of getting into all 50 states, we could say. Um, but wanted it, to. But wanted to, mm-hmm. right? Um I mean, that is like uh, bringing this back to the Lakeshore Breakthrough discussion. There's a decent number of those producers that were a part of Breakthrough's portfolio. And so what does that look like when you go into a bud house that also has a number of top 10 craft producers in it that are regional and in a city like Chicago where... Half the people are from Michigan. They they <laughs> fight about whether they drink Bells or Founders, uh-huh. and if they don't, they drink AB products. So, right. like, where does that have room for Odell, for Odell, for example? Um, and even, I mean, Dogfish is a part of that. I mean, Dogfish not by volume but by ideation is a part of that as well too. What relevancy does that have in the shoe collector world, right? None. I don't think it has any real relevancy in the shoe collector world. No. Uh, so they need to get like, they need to get placements. They need to have, um, attention. They need to have people like, you know, going, going for it. Now we used to, you know, they used, 
you need to have representation from the brewery. But now, um, you know, the, the, if the wholesaler says we are not going to be pushing your brand, there's not much you can do about it. I mean, we're just, yeah, you can, people want it, but that's fine. I mean, if they don't, if we're out of your stuff, they're going to go to this, which we want to push anyway. I mean, that's, that's the brand where we've decided for maybe good reasons that we're going to get behind. Um, the end result is that the consumer has less choice. It's not that Firestone Walker is not available in Chicago anymore. It's that there's going to be less of it. It's going to be older and in worse shape when it gets here. Um, and if you wanted something specialty or something like that, it's just not gonna, not gonna happen. I mean, when the distributors were afraid that craft beer was going to explode and keep exploding, we got great like customer service. They wanted to work with us. They wanted to help us. They wanted to make our, our, our beer program better. They wanted to be a part of it. As soon as they learned like, Oh, okay, it's, 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 it's going to be a thing forever but it's, it's not going to overtake bud. Okay. All right. What do you want? You want this? Now we're not going to do that. Okay. Uh, Like that, that I remember the first time that happened with a Reyes, uh, brewer, uh, distributor. I was like, wait, what? No, I, I'll pre-order it. I'll buy it. I'll pay for it. I want this beer. They make the beer, order it. I'll, I'll buy it. That's how this works, right? Mm-hmm. No. Ideally, we're not bringing in that beer. Yeah. I will. How much you need to be have brought in? I'll, I'll buy that much. No. And, and that's what happened. I mean, that was, that's been like two years ago that that started happening. And this was with the big, a big house. That was the most like, I think, got craft from a big house perspective better than almost anyone. And, um, like how to how to meld the two? I think they there there's a craft house here in in Chicago, kind of craft import house. That's like they're just kind of a a big import house. But there's these other guys who are like we're about moving volume. And I kind of figure I thought that they they figured how they can make craft part of this like big operation. And now they're like. Yeah, we have to work so much to not make as much money when we can just like not focus on that and sell more Bud Light. And they're right. Um, Them having that book is good because that means that those breweries aren't other places now. And it's just taking that set and, you know, whittling it down so there's less to have to worry about, you know, like... You know, it's a, it's a, it's a known known now. Like, all right, I know exactly what's going to happen with this brewery because they're in my book. So now I will. I mean, Bud used to do that with brands. They would buy them to kill them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reason being like, well, I can control it now that I have it. And that's the same thing with these, this distribution. Like, think of it if you're on like a, 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 you know, you're a kid trying out for a, you know, a travel basketball team or something like that. And even if your team then like combines with like the best one, you know, now there's still only that many spots available. There's still so many minutes a game for you to get in. You've got twice as many really good players 
also who are going to be first one in, last one out of the gym every day to compete with. So, like, some people are still going to be, you still have to have a starting five, but, like, it's it's just a lot harder to get playing time now. Mm-hmm. And if you're not funded, <laughs> good luck. You're mm-hmm. screwed. I mean, like, the Tyranitas of the world um, up in Wisconsin, they're dead. They're done in Chicago. No chance. Mm-hmm. No chance. And there's a million of them like that. Perennial, I was just talking about, done. Mm-hmm. How are you going to compete? No one's going to want to, like, move your stuff. You can't, you, you don't have a full-time rep here? Done. See ya. Mm-hmm. Next. What do you, what do you got? Oh, Deschutes? Mm, maybe. Yeah, all right. You were the top guy at Breakthrough. Maybe. I don't know. We do have, you know, Brewery X, Y, and Z. I don't know. We'll decide. Is Are we going to push you? Are we going to, you know, repress you? Um. You know, this is a maturing market. It's maturing rapidly. And I guess my hope is maybe we can return to what the era that you were saying, where we're trying to like find relationships, find little distributors who will come in and do drops for us. And those guys are out there now, which is awesome that they'll do these little drops and and make it interesting and fun. And, you know, I, I, I hope that like, you know, life will find a way, you know, they find like, you know, at the bottom of the ocean, there's still life going on. I think there will be stuff for people who care enough and are creative enough, but you know, it's just going to have to be more of a, like like a passion thing that these breweries are doing these places are doing and maybe that's how it's always supposed to have been you know maybe um you know places becoming blowing up uh, isn't how it was supposed to go you know Mm -hmm. maybe they were supposed to be boutique things sure i mean i would argue and i mean maybe this is our segue into this craft versus artisanal discussion as well too is that there was a there was a time where, look, all of these breweries were at that point at a certain point. No one, uh, whether it's Deschutes or whether it's Perennial or whether it's Tiranina or Central Waters, none of them opened up with, um, you know, eight to 10,000 barrels of capacity for their in their first year. They started small and their mentality was such that, okay, we're going to, make these beers that we're confident in that we believe in um we'll distribute locally or do like drops elsewhere for people that are enthusiasts of what we do and believe in what we do um and in a way there's been so much growth that now when we think of things like craft beer to me craft is linked to the amount of beer that you produce it's a volume designation only it means Literally, like it's lost all of its value qualitatively uh, in my book. And this discussion about um, about pastry beers makes me believe that even more. So <laughs> what is this? Uh, do you uh, I think you understand what I mean, Chris, when I say artisanal versus craft? Do you think there's validity in that distinction nowadays? With craft versus artisanal? Yeah. Validity, like, so are you saying, like, are there different types of craft breweries or, 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 or can you, what do you mean? Validity sure. in, in what? In let like me, let me define, difference? I'll define, yeah. should I, I could define artisanal as well. As I'm and sitting I, with the mic now in my, I like Yeah, it. I like it's good. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Artisanal is, I mean, this uh, Stroisa beer we drank is probably at like an apex of what artisanal is. Sure. Uh, producers of Belgian beer would be artisanal overall outside of like the family producers. Um, when we think of breweries that don't have the intention of growing, but of maintaining, uh, of growing outside of like growing unnaturally, I suppose, but rather are focused on making expressive and qualitative and original beers. I don't even think growth really comes into it. I mean, you can have someone who is like, you know, this is cool. Like this is where we're killing it in this, in this small spot. Most of my money comes from the Sea-Doo dealership that I, you know, am part owner of anyway. So, you know, that's fine. Like that's not artisanal, but they're also not interested in growth. So I, I think it's all about intent. It's about what, why are you doing this? Which is a lot harder to, you know, define, but it's like, you know, the, you know, cliche is the, the, the Supreme Court definition of pornography is like, I know it when I see it. And that's kind of, that's kind of like our, our artisanal, you know, it's, it's, it's not about how much you make. I would say there's probably some pretty big breweries. I mean, I would say, let me put this back down. Uh, I would say that, that Sierra Nevada, as of right now, in August twenty eighth, twenty twenty, I mean, if they if they sell, I'm just saying right now, you know, I'll be on suicide watch. I'm just gonna say, but anyway, <laughs> like they're more artisanal in a way than a lot of smaller craft breweries who are doing own premise and 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 you know, just doing that sort of thing. I I I I would say, I mean, artisanal might be difficult. I mean, they're such a huge company, but like. They are true to what they are doing in my in my mind. And if that's how I'm going to say that they're like artisans, like they care about what they make. They care about what they put out. If you've ever visited the breweries, especially the one in uh, in North Carolina, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I've never been to a, a brewery that is more like. True to the to the the spirit of what they're trying to do in everything they do. Like their groundskeeper, like has like everyone there has something that they're trying to do, like a side project that they must do to try to help build in things to the fold. So the groundskeeper there, the guy who like cuts the grass and all that stuff learned how to, you know, try to grow up mushrooms and do that. So they can use that in the, in the restaurant there and and it's be sustainable and all that sort of stuff like that's that's being that's like legit to me um mm. so uh it's i like i said I, I i i i hope i know it when i see it um i think that is like what to me all there is for craft like what it is is i mean it's a manufactured product like you can manufacture this stuff elsewhere. I mean, if you don't have like the 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 heart of the maker in it, what's the point? Like, mm -hmm. what is the point? I mean, it's it tastes it tastes good. A lot of things taste good, man. Like, uh, so that's that's all. I mean, why are we supporting these people? Why is our money when we pull it out of our pocket going here versus there? Mm -hmm. So. Definitely a designation to me. I think there's place for both, you know, but anyway, 
I'm getting eyes, so. No, no, I'm, no, I'm not at all. I'm going off no, no. script. No, uh, no, that's interesting. And I agree that uh, intent is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to see. And I think that its intent is something that is difficult to uh, perpetuate at scale, too. Yes. Near impossible, I would say. I'd say near mm-hmm. impossible. And that's why I use Sierra Nevada, because I think, like, I don't know anyone who's been able to do it like like them. And if you if there's people out there who are saying I'm wrong, like, go out there and, and tell me how it could possibly be done at that scale better than what they're doing. I mean, I don't think it's possible, personally. Um, yeah, I mean, as you grow, it gets legitimately... I couldn't do it. I'm not saying that... That, you know, if I were that big, I'd do it. I don't think I could do it. I think it's incredibly hard. It's also hard, like, all these people who've sold out, you know? Like, it, it, it's it's such a, uh, like, in a weird way, like a moral quandary. Like, what do you do? Like, you're Tony McGee. You have Lagunitas. Heineken is going to sell, is going to buy 50% of my company for $500 million dollars. You're supposed to say no to that. Let's say you do. Okay, what are you achieving in saying no? They're not going to go buy another brewery anyway, and that becomes the Lagunitas. They're going to buy someone. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard argument to make. But, you know, I mean, then again, you know, I mean, Tony McGee, he was, he's very crunchy. He's very, you know, lib he's very this and that he's a smart businessman obviously i think that guy's a genius in some ways um he was so far ahead of the curve with so many people but it's like at some point you're like you know you know me like talking as what i would think tony mcgee is saying it's like yeah you know i do care about craft and i do care about you know um this industry and 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 what you're what you what you make and where it comes from and being true to what we are the other on the other hand i got to get paid mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm. you know okay well then how i don't know at some point i think all of us have a you know a point in somewhere where we would go down that path to and justify it and rationalize it and all that stuff and it's hard to do and the guys with the money know that and very hard to to fight against those tides, I would say. So, as you were saying, as you get big, it becomes I don't know. I mean, maybe near impossible because if you say no, there's seven thousand breweries now. You're gonna find someone to say yes, and you just need one, and then you just put your might behind it, and you don't you know have ten of them say yes. You can get one of them, you know to. To work, or even has to work in that region, just suppress the other players enough. Mm-hmm. You've won, you've won, and that's all the Budweiser and all those guys I think are interested in doing. They don't care about craft, which is not. I mean, they're a beverage company. They just want to control the that space. But you know, and I think like the fact that people have a good time while they're drinking is is you know how they what they leverage to sell more it's not enhancing people having a good time i don't think you know um you know uh, inbev you know those those cutthroat uh uh 
Brazilians, you know, it's not like we're, we're in this really, what, what business are we in truly? Like if I can be real, uh, in, in really enhancing people's enjoyment of the time that they're having. Fuck no. They're like, we're in the business of selling shit. And what we sell is this. And the way we sell it is that. Because when people think drink beer, they're doing this. So we enhance, you know, the we we make, you know, people hanging out with your friends and this and that look more glamorous and sexy and this and that. And then people will associate us with that's how we do it. That's how we move more product. We have widgets. You know, it just turns out that our widget is beer. That is not our artisan. That's about, you know, community and social. And I love literally what we're doing now, sitting around, drinking beer, talking about stuff that is meaningful to us. Um, that's artisan, man. That's that's what it's, it is to me. And I'm sure there's people listening there who think that I'm, and are right, that I'm like naive and just don't get it. And it's true, but at the same time, what else is there? Then why care about anything of any quality? Like, it doesn't matter then, you know? Mm -hmm. Just, like, go eat Enemans Donuts all day. Like, who the <laughs> fuck cares? Sorry, I'm getting angry here. No, it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I, I mean, I come from, currently, the baking world, and I work at a... Enemans? No. Oh, actually. oh. Uh, <laughs> pie, pie, my darling. No, I'm joking. Uh, it's a very boutique-y vegan bakery to the point where i would call it an artisan bakery the owner is so invested and into everything that we do and there's no intent to grow beyond the storefront there's no intent to grow beyond what it is yet the demand is exceedingly uh painful for us because we just can't keep up the there's just no physical way for us to do it in the four walls and there's no desire on the owner's end to try and meet the maximum capacity of that demand. Mm. There's a desire to meet a good chunk of it because it sucks saying no. But at the same time, if we grew to the point where the demand was, where we were meeting the demand, we wouldn't be retaining the heart of what we do, which is everything baked from scratch, everything done by hand. Everyone who is there has an extreme passion for it. And so you would have to get really lucky with bringing in everyone that we did bring in to have that same kind of passion that everyone is there. And I just don't see it ever being possible. Mm. I think both approaches are okay. You know, mm -hmm. I think it is okay to expand, to give the people who want to buy your product, the product. I, I don't think there's any problem with it. I also think like, Listen, we make this much every day. This is what there is. I am really sorry, but this is the operation we do. And there's, they're both okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's, you know, everything is about, is about, um, you know, it, it compromises. I'm, I'm sure even you guys, everybody has to make some compromises sometimes. You have to do it. Um, um, you know, I mean, if something doesn't come out perfectly one day, what do you do? Just like, sorry, nothing today. I mean, maybe some people do it, but at some point you, you have to pay your rent. Like you have to pay your employees. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, th- th- and that's what makes it so much more difficult because everything is, you know, you can iterate down that sliding, you know, that slippery slope until it's like, see, you are no different from Reyes and Bev, all that stuff. See, <laughs> you, you get that now. It's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, I guess so. But like, it's, you know, I, I think at some point there is some dogmatic and like, you know what? You may have like proven to the word that I'm wrong, but we both know I'm right. So go shut up or whatever. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I've cursed a little bit too much. Now, so I'm okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's an interesting uh, situation, especially for breweries too, but the bakery, you know, that's like, awesome. I mean, curious to see how it, how it goes. Um, I mean, I think the most treasured places I've ever been to are ones and the ones that people want, like the authentic authenticity that everybody wants. Isn't like, I think the Zenith of, of it is the 50 year old place. Who's been doing it this way forever. Like that's what everybody wants to be. That's the experience when they go into a place that they want. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, there aren't many of those because it's really hard for many reasons to do that. And it's getting harder now when you've got people who are like, Oh, I love that concept. I've got a money guy. We can do that. You know, (laughs) instead of being like family businesses. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and that's the issue too. If we decide, well, the decision's been made, it ain't growing, right? Who's to stop anyone else from opening up a vegan bakery. And then with the capital behind it, I mean, vegan's huge right now capital behind it, it can go to the limits and then you're just pushing out everyone underneath that. But does the integrity of the smaller person shine through whereas the person who goes for the bigger option, it doesn't. And you know what? And and you could even say that there is a chance, like if, if someone is true. So I think someone could with money, let's, 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 let's look at it from a positive perspective. You know, like let's say well, there, there is the possibility, and it does actually happen where someone says, like, I cannot be that, but I love what you guys are doing, and I think by growing the space, I can say, stay separate from you enough where it keeps you guys vibrant and thriving, and I'm growing this space so other people like you also can pop up and vegan becomes a bigger thing and stuff like that. I mean, I'm no expert in the coffee world, but... You know, I think you could have a lot worse giant players in the world than than Starbucks, and maybe um, people are gonna, you know, curse me out uh, for saying that. But like, it could be a lot worse than than those guys. I think. I think they, as it comes, you know, um, they could be better too. But you know, it's 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 not like they're. Um, I mean, shoot. I mean, imagine if like Jeff Bezos owned uh, Starbucks. I mean, it'd be like ruthless. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, uh-huh. so uh, it, it can be good to grow too. I mean, you can, if you truly do feel strong about, um, you know, I think at some point, you know, Starbucks probably did feel very strongly about higher quality coffee and stuff like that. Um, and I'm, I'm somebody might be able to do that with, with craft beer, with vegan baking and stuff like that. Now there's other people who see it strictly as a flip. I'm going to take this, I'm going to pump it up, and I'm going to flip it. I'm just going to extract this um, this energy from it, this resource. I'm just going to tap it for my own financial gain. I think it's happening 
now that's like a thing that is like what it's almost like glorified now in in today's in, in you know like the terms like oh building your own brand and having to do like these are like boardroom terms and i'm stealing stuff from that i heard adam mckay say in uh in in a podcast but um you know th those are not terms that i think should be necessarily like uh uh looked up to as like what you like oh i want to build my own personal brand and yeah it's true that you do have to build those sort of things but like using those terms inherently like strips away some of like the genuineness mm -hmm. of it right you know like um and i don't like that those are just becoming like i'm sure like middle schoolers and stuff know what it is to have a brand identity that i don't think that's a good thing <laughs> you know <laughs> it's just being like okay because now what's my brand i gotta pivot you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I think there's um, with oh, smaller man. brands, I, I just, with, I guess like where where I see the artisanal uh, coming through is with smaller producers where there's no time to think about marketing because mm. I'm invested in these other things that I'm doing with this facility and I'm focused on the quality where the marketing isn't great because that's not my focus. Right. And maybe that's because someone has bad time management, but it's most likely because there's other stuff that's more important to do. And to me, that's a starting point of like, okay, maybe these people have the kind of integrity. And so there's bad branding because there's bad branding mm -hmm. and there's bad sensibilities. And maybe I have a specific set of sensibilities because I walk around wearing black all the time and listen to loud music. But the, you know, I think that with how people spend their time and how they project that, that's also an indicator in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think through quarantine, I've seen a lot of people through like different various Facebook groups and stuff starting um, like hot sauce companies or like other little like startup side things. hustles. Yeah. But the first thing I see is like a, a logo or like a brand identity instead of pushing out a product. And I think that kind of shows you what, what is your end goal here? Is it actually the product or is it like creating this image of something and just is this an actual passion for what it is or are you just trying to make something to make money right like did you get your mba so you could more effectively grow this thing you love or did you get your mba so that you can find something and make money from it like mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. like what all right let me let me go through the data what is it okay all right oh this is interesting baking and artisans up veganism okay perfect pairing all these Bang. things together okay perfect perfect this is okay my algorithm shows that vegan baking is what to do it but it has to be authentic it has to have this style of branding so like the so look i'm going to take my 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 art team and show them all this stuff can you do this oh that's good no 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 make it like it little more authentic-y scratchier perfect okay now we'll take that like that stuff is happening all the right. time man and it's like you know uh now put it in the hands of oh we're gonna oh oh my you know this this person this celebrity does it we'll give them a piece have them put it in there you know have them eating your food i mean all it takes now is for um you know 
Kim Kardashian, I'm now like five years behind on whoever the fuck the influencer is. But it's like, you know, have them eating this vegan thing and, you know, it's it's off and running. Like, I just learned the other day, and it could be wrong that, like, you know, kettlebells are huge because of Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. who the, like, it, it's crazy. But, like, okay, that's all it takes now is for... <laughs> somebody to say that this is what you should do and 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 there are people who are smarter than anybody in this room who are working on those algorithms man and just like and 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 the the fact now that they are algorithmizing authenticity i think is the most disturbing thing of all Mm -hmm. is that they are like you are stripping away the very meaning of that thing and when being authentic now means being inauthentic we're done we are done and we are like like heading down that like track at faster and faster speed it's like oh make it more authentic more authentic you know um am i the only one who thinks that like authenticity is being like engineered now absolutely if that's just like thumb there yeah, yeah. I, no, I don't even want it without no, that. Just I just like want me. the word like yeah. me because it's, it makes it that much more sad. Like mm-hmm. that's what we all want is we just want people just like me, like uh-huh. me. But, but like the likes are, are just, they mean, they mean literally like from an, intri- well, from a, from a, an actual value, they may, may meet, makes, it might, might make money, but that's not right. a like, like you, you don't really like that person you're right. just like giving give it give me a fraction of a penny mm-hmm. like give come on man give a guy give a guy one one thousandth of a penny come on man please mm-hmm. it's like th- that in a way but like all right fine that's worth you you know you gotta you gotta grind this out there i'll give you that you know mm-hmm. that i but like i hate that it's called like right because it's it's <laughs> It's just become this depressing thing for me now. The idea of like, how many likes did you get? It's like, right. oh, fuck, man. Like, nobody likes you. Trust me. It, yeah, it's trust the, me. Right, nobody it's the wrong you. word for that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Trust I, me. Nobody likes me either. So like, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> I just think we've like lost this connection with like our our former values, where we come from, our connection to Chicago isn't really a good example of being connected to the land, but like the sort of primitive value of where we come from, you know, like taking pride in what we reaping, what we sow essentially like gardening in our, ourselves and growing our own food and like maybe owning an animal like a chicken or a cow and like having the sense of where everything comes from. We're totally disconnected from that. When you get disconnected from that, then what really are you grounded to? Uh, to so we and, and you still have those 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 plugs still need to go into something we are human so like right. we have these things that are genetic to like the basis of being an animal of being a human of being a mammal you know and they're going to find things to go into and what it's going to do is what does um you know this jenner's uh uh, you know, beauty line product, like, you know, like those things, we're all looking for things to plug into. And I think they're all primal. And, and that's what happens. It just becomes this engine of, of capital 
I think. I mean, I, 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 I can't believe I've gotten this radical in, in on this podcast, but that's to me what it seems like. It's just like consume, 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 consume. It, it doesn't matter. Like just, just keep, keep buying it. You know, the use of like, um, extreme language now, like the best greatest ever, like listen to that language. Now, how often it says like, Oh my God, the like, I think the best ever of that was, it's always the best, the most, the worst, the least. It, it, the, how that has come, it's it's all like, it, it's born from this like listicle, like we need to have the 10 best. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea of a creative thought, as you were saying off air, um, it, it's gone. Like, tell me what's the best. There is an answer. And the fact that there is no answer is not what people want to hear. It's the truth. Mm -hmm. It's like everything is what you make it, man. <laughs> like, yeah. like mm -hmm. not to get too into that, but it's like, but, but you don't want to hear that. Like, I don't, no. if you tell me what's the best, I don't have to worry anymore. Right. Because mm -hmm. I know. So just tell me what's the, like, I have a neighbor who I can, smart dude, he's made a ton of money, makes a lot more money than I do. And, but every time he has a new product around his house or that I see he's got a new mower, I can like, it's a game. I just say like, okay, new lawnmower, top 10 lawnmowers. <laughs> See what number one comes up. That's what that, like you are a sheep, man. Mm -hmm. You're a mm -hmm. sheep if you don't think that that's rigged, dude. And maybe again, maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't have the bandwidth to care about that stuff. And I'm the only asshole who stays up at night thinking about that shit. <laughs> like I'm the, I'm the loser. He's the winner because he just, does it, buys it, and moves on, you know? But <laughs> but does that fulfill this need for him? I like, have the best. I have the this. I, I don't have to worry about it Maybe anymore. that's all that it is, though. Maybe. Is that there is no need there. It is that I need this product to accomplish this thing. I don't have any... I think it's the opposite, actually, though. Okay. <laughs> I do. I think that it's like, I need to be the best. I need to have the best. I need to have the best mm -hmm. lawnmower. Mm-hmm. Why? So your fucking lawn gets cut be the best, <laughs> the best, man. But your lawnmower. Recognition has... for that, then does it fulfill that? You know what I mean? Like if I you think... don't go out there and say, "Man, that's a really nice lawnmower," does that fulfill this urge for that person? No, we're all doing this. We're all in the same boat as this guy, right? We're all there. You're there with mm -hmm. your baking. Why does that matter? Because right. I think it matters to me. I want to be a good person. I want to like I have my own set of values and I want to be true to my values. My value as Mr. Lawnmower guy is like I want to like I'm discerning. I want to have high quality stuff. Mm -hmm. So I care about having good quality stuff. I don't want to say I have bad quality things. So that's what I do. You know, tell me that's not the best. Look, this list says it is so. And now I will say when I need to find out something like that dude knows, so like he, like I, I'm using, I, I'm stripping it down and, and really like caricaturizing what this guy does. Cause he like researches everything and knows like all sorts of stuff about what he does. But like, it's very important to him to have the highest quality stuff. Does it end up with, I mean, maybe that does make him happy and keeps him, you know, warm at night and, and stuff like that. But I think that's, again, it's a human thing. We want to be good, not bad, mm -hmm. you know, right, not wrong. 
right. and we and people are are smart. I mean, now you've got all these like PhDs in like human behavior working for Facebook and Amazon, and like it's just. I fear. I fear Amazon. <laughs> Amazon is so much smarter than all of us. Mm-hmm. They have so many of the smartest people in the world. Yeah. And what are they doing? Are they like making bridges for us? Are they are they solving problems? Are that no. They're they're just making us click the button more. Mm-hmm. And guess what? They figured our lizard brains out, man. Like Yeah. Game over, man. Game over. Yeah. You know, Bezos is one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I fought the constant conundrum of there was a point maybe a year ago where I realized I was buying too much from Amazon. And I was like, okay, I need to like not do that. I need to buy from people who are local Mm -hmm. and support smaller businesses. The thing is, sometimes that is damn near impossible. Because we've all bought from them too much. Mm -hmm. That's how they win. You keep buying from them. Yep. Now you don't have the option but to. Because try to buy a book, I guess. Try to buy a book somewhere right. else now. You can't. It's hard. Like like hardware stores, like independent hardware stores are kind of holding out. But like retail is dead, man. The only reason liquor's around is because of the convoluted uh, uh, liquor uh, laws and and the lobby of the distributors and and all that stuff. But like without that, you're done. Like mm-hmm. the small like electronics store, like done, gone, doesn't exist anymore. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I mean, but but like you don't have the option anymore. Right. Like you don't have the choice. So now it's well, whatever Amazon sells. And I was, I mean. I was an early kind of like radical about not buying from Amazon because I kind of saw, I saw it happening with like Walmart and stuff like that. Personally, it's how I interpreted it is like, yeah, there's no, there's no town centers anymore because everybody is leaving the town center and going to Walmart. And that's why there is no local, all these stores, you know, any kind mm-hmm. of like little local store, store you'd have anymore. They don't exist anymore. And now Amazon's just, you know, amplified that. And, and now look at now, like what I drive back East a lot and it's, it's like you pull off the highway and it's like, I'll say to my wife, like, Oh, we've been there. We've stopped off here before. And she's like, no, we haven't. It's like, well, yeah, I remember. Cause there's the Olive Garden and then the batteries and light bulb store. And then the, and this is not me. Like I'm literally thinking we've been here and she's uh-huh. a much better memory about the name of towns and stuff like that. And she's like, no, we have never been here. And they're just all the, the same, same now. Mm-hmm. They're the same. Mm-hmm. Like what's the difference in living in Ohio versus living in Kansas versus living in New Jersey versus living in like, there's no difference now, unless you're in the city where there is some of that anymore. And fuck man, I think we're not in a good place with this COVID now because, but but even in a city, a city is still a city, right? There's becoming less and less that's distinctive about what makes a city a city. I agree. Right. I agree. It's all, you know, it's all, just coming together. I mean, definitely part of globalization, for sure. But also, it is the internet. It is a factor of Amazon. I think it's more the internet than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been globalized as a world for over two, three hundred years at yeah. this point. But like, the internet has 
put a hyperspeed on that just interconnectedness of everything from speaking to trade and what we consume. And I think you're right. COVID has put almost a death stamp on everything of that all we hold dear. And who in wins? City. Who's won? If Amazon. you could name, yeah. That's it. That is literally it. It's And there are people who are like straight up like marching with an Amazon flag. Like I was telling my mom, like, mom, stop buying stuff. You get something from Amazon every day. Right. Stop it. Stop. And she now has moved into the, sh into the city and she's starting to like, it's starting to click. Like, oh, when I buy from this, I'm not buying from that. Right. If that doesn't get money, that doesn't exist. Right. And, you know, it's, I think honestly, like, okay, I'll put climate change number one. This is like number two for me mm -hmm. is like, this is what our culture is about. And it's, it's, we're handing it over to people. And I do think unlike climate change which is why it's the most important like we can turn this thing around but right. it's it's going to be the long tail as i was saying before we're now just going to fight for the, the the few people who give a shit and and i think you know we have to i don't think we've the world has never experienced anything like what's happening this hyper speed of of just everything coming down to to amazon and i hope that there's a a reaction and a pushback um, and some people say, yeah, there will be, there will be, but I just, maybe it's my pessimism is like, you know how like there we are, it's not even like we're playing checkers and they're playing chess. It's like, we're flipping a coin and they're like, like Kasparov, like they are a uh -huh. hundred moves in front of us. Mm -hmm. They have teams of, of, of PhDs who are like, just my job is who just how, what color scheme makes you do this more? Like what, mm -hmm. just fractionally more, what gets you to do it? At what point is it just like, do you throw up your hands and say, fine, I won, I won. You threw up your hands in disgust and said, fine, I right. win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and imagine that, like, that's my job. I went to school for this long at, at Stanford so I could, Get you to throw up your hands and just i got to get paid right you know? <laughs> it's like yeah i mean it's a sad way to s i i don't think we're gonna be able to beat amazon i just think we as a society are too far gone especially when you think of maybe not the city but think of the suburbs where they're now i i come from a small northwest town like almost in wisconsin if Amazon didn't exist, a lot of the luxuries, I guess you could say, that we have in that town wouldn't exist, especially in the free two-day shipping format as well. So it's like, basically, if you're just thinking two days ahead, you're just going shopping online, right? People wouldn't be able to have all these things that they wouldn't otherwise already have. And people are going to be very hard to be torn away from those things that they now are accustomed to. And so... Give me an example of something like any, like even hypothetical. Yeah. So let's just look at food, I guess, for an example. Uh, if I lived in this town, 
I could either drive 45 minutes to an hour to go to the most local Asian market and get the miso paste that I use to make miso soup, or, wow, Amazon's got a drive format of that, two-day shipping. Oh, wow, and it's $3 cheaper from that market where I could buy it in person. What am I going to do? I mean, now I know what I would do, but like then, before... I probably would have just bought Amazon. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of people are going to do. And it's not just food. It, there's a lot of instances of the convenience of what a city brings to people that you don't get in way out in rural America. True. And, and in some instances, maybe that instance, maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe more people are broadening their horizon and cooking and using miso paste than ever would have before. I'm sure there are more people now who are 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 eating you know, more broadly from a, you know, culinary perspective than, than ever before. I mean, I think the days of like the meat and potato guy is, is, you know, those people are shrinking rapidly. I mean, more people have had, you know, not just like Chinese food, but it's like Chinese, Japanese, Thai, Vietnamese, you know, all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. I think is much more common now, which is, I would say a, a, a good thing. Um, but you know, if, if Amazon didn't provide good things, it wouldn't be popular. It's not that Amazon does not give you good things and that it is not the better thing in some instances to do. That's the that's the danger of it. It's right. like, you know. Well, it's the convenience and mm-hmm. the speed of it and, and the maliciousness of getting people to use the service. Yes. Uh People are addicted to that kind of convenience. And that convenience wrapped around COVID is what is going to kill that market that is 45 minutes away. That will give Amazon the edge, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so then the only thing people have to do is go to Amazon. The only thing they can do if they want to continue doing that is go to Amazon. Where can you get miso paste now? Like literally nowhere else. Like I'm saying hypothetically now, right. like now you have to get it from them. And now that store that supplied people like, hey, man, if anyone wants me so paced in a 50 mile radius, they got to come to me. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, well, now there's someone saying like, well, if there's anyone in 500 mile radius, because <laughs> I'm <laughs> the only one who's left. Right. Um, and it's. And that's a bad proposition to be yeah. in because no Very. one's going to go. No. Right. At that point. Right. No one. But, but then the flip side is you're bringing a locality back to food. You're bringing a regionality back to food, something that is from its source. Is that a bad thing? Right. I mean, maybe we'll start having, you know, maybe the, you know, the, the, the post-apocalyptic landscape, you know, they always show, you know, the, the end of the Lorax, you know, there's like that one tree starting to, you know, pop up again. There's like the little sprout coming and maybe there will be like a truly local food movement there will be people who i think want that human connection you know there'll be you know yeah it's fine that the drone drops off my you know you know copters in my diapers you know like that's that's fine or my miso paste or or something like that um but i still think there is going to be a need for a human connection which i think is what all three of us at this table have certainly locked on to is that we find that important, this human connection. 
and I don't I don't care what's on the top ten list. I, I long ago stopped looking at top ten lists of and ratings on beers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. like because I I learned that it's like it's it's only one person's opinion. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean it. Well, I mean it's 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 what do they call it? Um, when uh, a group mind, it's group yeah. mind. You know, it's an amalgamation of everyone's thoughts. Yeah, mm-hmm. a, a bulk amount of people's thoughts. Well, but then also, you know, like, do you have good taste? Yeah, I have good taste. That's the number one right. beer in the world. Do you like it? You have good taste, right? Oh, I got you it. like the number one beer in the world, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, then rate it number one. Right. So what? What came first, the chicken or the egg? It's yeah. like you yeah. know, no, it, it perpetuates exactly. <laughs> right. It, I, I would give it a, a perfect example of that. While a great beer is zombie dust, I think that's a perfect example of that. Yeah. What you just gave. Everyone in this area was like. Well, have you had zombie dust? It's the best IPA around. Like mm-hmm. that, that is that that is the one you want to drink. And then everyone got fixated on this, especially when you couldn't always get it in Chicago. They were like, "Oh, you can't get it. Oh, but they have it right now. You better get it because that's like that's the best beer mm-hmm. that you can get in that and, style." And even when it was like widely available, um, people still thought that it was difficult to get yeah. too. I don't yeah. know if people still do. People as a retailer, do people still think it's difficult to get? We move through it. I mean, the other thing is perfect. Uh, well, oh man, I'm going to, well, some people might not be happy that I'm going to say this, <laughs> but it's like there is an element of what you were saying with the vegan bakery, mm-hmm. right? There are, so th- that beer was changed to make it more available to sell more of it for multiple reasons some within their control some outside of their control Mm -hmm. that beer is not what it was when it came out for better or for worse i would say for worse i would say most people i know would say for worse but you know that's fine people still have that beer more people enjoy that beer than when i was saying it was better so like you know it's bringing happiness to more people than when i was saying it you know i don't drink that beer anymore i don't really like zombie dust but it's bringing your happiness of that time to it's not the same happiness right right no it isn't and i i remember like having a conversation with john laffler who's you know uh owner of of off color and and founder and i'd say one of the great brewing minds of of certainly the chicago area and us just like shaking our heads in disbelief the first time talking about the first time we had ha- each had zombie dust and this was probably like maybe our fifth time ever having it you know we're sitting at a bar we're sitting at north down uh you know r.i.p to them and um and just shaking our heads being like how the fuck did these guys do this again they reinvented a style that everyone had said was tapped out the american pale ale and they'd like they reinvented it again. This is like, these guys are, are, are geniuses. This is amazing. This stuff is a special beer. This is a, a new a dawning of a new era of, of pale ales. And these are, these, this was like me and, and, and laugh I'm not trying to toot our horns, but I think realistically, like we were people who were very in tune to what was going on and what was happening. And we're like, this is special. And it, it, it wasn't because our palates were tuned to know that this was extra good because everyone drank it and was like, 
holy shit, this stuff is amazing. But then the hype, th then it was like, it's the best. So rated the best, right? So now mm -hmm. I'm having it. Well, this is the best. So this, oh, this is what the best tastes like. <laughs> now I know what the best tastes like. Cool. Okay. Well, let me rate that the best. And then perfect. Now I know what the best tastes like. Perfect. Now I'm going to go buy a lawnmower. Anyway. Uh, so it's like, <laughs> you know, but it's like, no, there is that there now. Mm -hmm. So there is, it, it, it has morphed into that. Like mm -hmm. Laffler and I, I don't, I mean, I don't think we have any like aversion to zombie dust, but I'm telling you, like if zombie dust taste, I would drink that stuff all the time if it still tasted like it now i think i've probably been also remember that flavor profile of the citra hop was like new to us mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. like holy shit what is this so that was a truly revolutionary beer if you ask me like it was game changing and obviously it has been but it's it's that ain't what that beer is anymore that beer has has changed uh, I'm not going to say for the better or for the worse. I'd say f overall for the better. But beer has also changed too. Right. Yeah. And that style, they were probably the last ones to create a defining American pale ale. Now, I would say so. American pale ale. American pale ale is an afterthought at this point. Mm -hmm. Now it's about something that looks like shit and tastes and tastes right. like and is double dry hopped instead. Right. Right. Yeah. You have to also think what has changed too is our climate and what grows hops. So that profile is changing drastically every year. You can't maintain a consistent citra hop profile year after year. As much as you try, I feel like that would change year after year, right? I would think so. I mean, I don't know. They also have lots that they pick. And someone like Three Floyds, I would think, would have a pretty, not the top choice, but close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that they have learned a lesson. Uh, I mean, I think not single-handedly, but I think they were probably the biggest voice of many, uh, driving that Citra thing. I mean, they were like, this is Citra. This zombie, this used to be a hundred percent Citra beer, which was, you know, that was like me having nothing but well or 12, you know, it was like, it's. <laughs> kind of like silly but I, I could do it so why not mm -hmm. you know but uh there's really no reason to only to 100 percent like to have a bit a hop bittered with citra is so like at this point indulgent mm -hmm. um uh but it, it made for and maybe citra was better back then i don't know i mean citra's still pretty damn good but mm -hmm. it i think there's good citra bad citra and but now it's just been like oh you have citra I mean, we, I used to say it's the easy button. That was the, you know, there's the, that marketing thing for uh, staples, you know, oh, it's the easy button. Just hit the easy button. <laughs> staples will solve it for you. It's like citrus, the easy button of beer, man. Mm -hmm. like, just put citra in it and it'll sell, but it also tastes pretty good. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's hard to mess up a beer with citra in it. At least that when it first came out. Now I think our palates have adjusted and stuff like that. And like, this beer tastes like shit, man. <laughs> well, I mean, they learned a lesson in sustainability of making a recipe and creating an animal. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. Multiple. But now they, they don't say what pops they put in a beer. Of anymore. course. That's what I was kind of get to with, uh, with, with, uh, Floyd's. I forgot to get to my point, which happens with me a lot. Um, they don't, they don't say what's in their beer, what hops are in their beer. And they're using a lot of experimental, a lot of, um, 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 uh, 
New Zealand hops and, and stuff like that, um, that they, I've heard, have contracted out, like, way, way in the future. So, like, everything of this hop from this farm is mine for a long time. Uh-huh. It might not be huge, but if it does get huge, guess what? You ain't getting any of it. And mm-hmm. I'm not even going to tell you what it's called, you know? So yeah. it's... Uh, Could well not have a name in the first right. place. It's true. Just a number. What's right. the point? It doesn't need to have a name. Yeah. It, it, what is it? It's whatever I say. It doesn't it need to be marked up and drink it. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think... Right. But uh, in a way, this was where uh, the agricultural side of beer was heading anyways. And that is that you're creating a beer that is a flavor idea, right? And so you don't need to make it with this. Uh, there's a pr- Okay, there's a perspective that you don't need to make it with the same, if it's a hop-driven beer, you don't need to use the same hops every time. You create something, a blend of hops that is going to taste a certain way or smell a certain way. Um, not uh, not terribly unlike a Blambic producer blending towards an idea of what a brand tastes like. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that was very well put. Well, yeah. well whether... Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> but we can also... Uh, nonetheless, though, there are smaller nuances that come out when this thing sits out over time and when you're changing the recipes on a consistent basis, then that's where we can build a general idea that maybe this beer isn't as consistent as it was at a certain point when the recipe was known too. And I think there's something that, uh, about us not knowing that makes us feel a little insecure about it too. Yeah. Um, what makes you insecure? No, not knowing I, I, what? no, no. I think that makes us uh, question the beer in some way because the ingredients were at one point listed and there is transparency, mm-hmm. and now there isn't. I think that, um, especially for people like us that like we pay attention to these things, um, it's upsetting in a way because we were given information and now we don't know, and we know this brewery has grown so much that. Well, I mean, I guess I've always thought of it as like a protectionist thing from other businesses, not a protectionist thing from consumer information. Now, that might be a collateral damage. I think, you know, the the consumer having information, uh, my guess is Floyd's would rather, well, I don't know with them. They're, They're such a weird brewery. I'll talk about a love-hate relationship. Um, I mean, they're the exception to every rule. They're the exception and the rule to every rule. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, there's, I don't know if there's another brewery really quite like them in the in the world. Um, and I, you know, because I'm thinking like, do, do, you know, are they keeping it from their competitors? Are they keeping it from the consumers? And I was like, I, I think they don't, wouldn't have any problem with the consumer having that information. And then I'm thinking back to like how late to the game they were with getting date coating on their bottles and uh and and cans uh really bottles because by the time they did cans they had date coating on it but like come on guys like put dates on your bottles like put it on there but you know they knew that their stuff was probably sitting around and a lot of little bodegas and stuff like that and they wanted to move it and I think that is at this point and at the time that they were doing it and at the size they were kind of indefensible. Uh, you know, there were a lot of smaller breweries 
who were um, who cared enough to spend the money on the date coder. So like, I don't want to hear that like, well, our system couldn't do it. Like, no, you could have put a date coder. You could have put that information on there. You chose not to, and that was, yeah. I mean, I'd say three Floyds. I, I always have had kind of this love-hate relationship. Like, I love you guys. Why do you do this stuff? Like, your your the quality of your of your of your beer is is so awesome at times. Um, and truly, I think you are an important brewery in the history of craft beer. Like, I mm-hmm. I truly think that. And then you do some like stuff that's just like is not cool to me. But then again, I think. Uh, they truly, in the truest sense of the word, do not give a shit about what I think. Like, for, for better or for worse. It's like, yeah, that's cool. We're going to do our own way. We're doing okay. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, bravo to you. You know, mm-hmm. like at some point you have to just like tip your hat and be like, fair enough. You know, I'm just some jerk. Well, I think the the <laughs> not listing ingredients and not... Uh, and it's an effort towards uh, getting people to focus on a brand instead of the components, right? Ultimately, they're trying to build brands. Zombie Dust, Alpha King, uh, these are brands that they they don't want people to judge it based on what's in it, but they want to, it to be judged based on what the power of that brand is. And I think that's where some of the packaging comes well, maybe in. Maybe that's what it like. I mean, I don't know. I mean, think about like before. So they may have had all that information out there. Like they used to put, they still may for like Alpha King and stuff like that. I don't know why they would take it away. Um, I don't think that brand was in any way helped or hurt by that information being on uh, available. So, you know, I would always say that, you know, more information is better, but I don't think it really helped the brands grow before. I mean, we were paying attention to it. Like I, at some point in time, I forgot now I knew what hops were in Gumball head versus alpha King versus, you know, all, you know, those beers. I don't, I have forgotten by now, but, did it matter to me? Uh, again, you were much more of a maker. You've always been more of a maker than I have been, Alexi. Like, I don't have that urge to create that. I have an urge to discover and then learn about and all that sort of stuff. Like, I'm wearing the scratch thing, which we have, I mean, really, we need to be talking about scratch more. I'm very <laughs> upset about that. Um, it's a, um, people who listen to my podcast are going to be shocked that I have not talked about scratch, uh, more. Um, I don't want to do a collaboration with scratch. Like, what am I going to get? What am I going to lend to scratch? That's my thinking, you know, but, um, but you show me like that, but you, and you, you guys, but you do lend things to your collaborations. I'm not saying that you don't, I'm saying I don't trust myself to make anything better. Well, I, I think that. Uh, again, like creativity comes in a lot of different ways. And so Mm -hmm. by being, uh, an important retailer that gives them a platform, uh, and finding a way to incorporate them into the larger, uh, conversation about beer, which in Chicago, you do have a strong voice in the Chicago craft beer world. And 
uh, arguably in the craftier world in the United States. Oh. Yeah. Oh, only you're going to go to U.S.? The I English was hoping you go to the universe. Yeah. <laughs> the known universe. The known universe. As far as you know. Yeah. I, I don't know oh, you much. Say, yeah. There you go. <laughs> you're saying there's someone in the universe? Yeah. And, and another planet? I'm just saying in the I mean, universe. I uh, mean, Jeff Bezos probably knows who that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but First contact was made to him. Yeah, exclusively. He's probably, you know, one of those, like, Draco reptilian dudes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd say I, so. I think so. Um, but I think that's the that's uh, a really, really positive thing that can be done that is... There's a creativity within it as well, but there's also the skill of finding something, figuring out where it fits into the into this world of beer and putting it in front of people. And there is a risk in, ta in taking in putting scratch beer in your store. There was a risk in us taking scratch beers in yeah. 2012 and putting them on draft at local option too. Kudos because to no, you for doing that. Because here we are with uh, Aaron coming in with these weirdo medicine bottles and uh, a regular that had never brought a beer uh, producer. And we were like, what the fuck is this shit? And then we drink it and we're like, oh, this is as great as a lot of these Belgian beers that we revere. Um, but made with these ingredients. How do we sell this to someone? How do we tell someone there's mushrooms in this beer? Yeah, you and they're picture. like, what the fuck is that? Um, yeah. I don't want mushrooms in my beer. And so it takes uh, with that in order to put that in front of people, it takes gumption and it takes creativity because you have to explain to these people, OK, this is what the intention is with this beer. This is how it makes sense within the larger framework of mm -hmm. craft beer. And this is why you need to taste it. Yes. Yeah. Cannot say enough about Scratch. They are truly, I mean, one of the most important breweries making beer in the world right now, as far as I'm concerned. I, 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 I will that. say that. I mean, yeah. I think they are, they're tiny. They don't make anything. But what they are doing is, to me, incredibly meaningful and um, important, you know. Uh, I, I say this about, uh, you know, Edmar, Edmar Zuski owns, uh, uh, or I don't know, how, I don't know if he would say he owns, but I'll say he owns Lumpin' Radio. And, uh, you know, he's a very boisterous, uh, which is where I do my podcast and stuff like that. Um, very boisterous personality. And, you know, he can certainly rub people the wrong way. And I like to say, like, you know, the world does not need everyone to be Edmar. But the world needs some people to be Edmar. And I feel the same way about Scratch. Like, not every brewery should be Scratch. I would hate mm -hmm. that beer world. But there needs to be some of these people out there doing that. And uh, I really feel like it's... it's. Um, I feel very strongly to make sure people know about that. Because I truly think that it's they're an important brewery. Um, I mean, in, in as far as beer or making something can be important, which to me, it, it has value much beyond the fact that this is something that tastes cool and has a cool story to it and, and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I know you, you I, I know we're, you know, all of similar mm -hmm. mind here. Um, to shift gears a little bit, if you don't mind, Alexi, what about doing, like this is selfish right now. Um, these collaborations as long as i've known you you've you've done them um i just knowing you i know that 
that you are doing them from a, a good, I, I trust that you're doing them from a good place. What about going to a brewery? And I'm going to play like, present this from my perspective. Why, if you're doing a brown ale, let's just say, I don't know if you've ever done one or not. Like, what are you, <laughs> Alexi, going to go to Great Central Brewing, a professional brewing operation, and help them or improve upon them or, or, or do something unique or worth production? Like, how are you adding to that? Uh, that is the primary reason I don't do collaborations, and that is why I'm asking yeah, you. I'm I, very interested to hear your. So I have made a brown that. ale, and okay. let me tell you the thought process. <laughs> oh, I drank it. your brown ale. You have. I yeah. I think you have a poster of it too. Yeah. I do. I do. Um, <laughs> that my bar. So the whole idea <laughs> is that there's uh, with brown ale, there's certain parameters in which it should be made that are really appropriate to the style and that fit how I would like to drink it and what that specific producer has in order to be able to make it happen. In the case of uh, the brown ale, if it's too loud, making it on a direct fire system was a, the only option from my perspective. And so who has a direct fire system uh, that's small enough to make this beer and allow us to sell it at a rate to where we can constantly make it? then Spiteful makes sense. Spiteful, also, they enjoy classic styles of beer. They do, I would say, in a lot of ways, modern interpretations of classic styles. They have other things that they do as well, but they are uh, married to the a certain idea of how beer should be constructed as well, too. Um, and so making a beer with them made sense. Did I redefine what a brown ale is to them? No, because they'd already made a number of brown ales before I even showed up at their door and said, hey, let's do this. Um, but there was a specific idea of what this brown ale embodies, the place that it's going to be drunk, and the attitudes of everyone involved. And to me, it's the marriage of all that that comes together. There's nothing that I'm going to bring to the table from like a technical perspective and there's nothing that I'm going to tell them flavor-wise about this beer that is going to change anything because we're looking at something with a relatively like textbook framework. Um, but as a collaborative partner, you want to bring the you want to bring something to the table as far that that is distinctly you. And to me, that comes with uh, marrying like the brand in some way uh, with that particular beer. It was a Kuma's beer, so we're bringing in uh, an artistic side, a visual aesthetic. I'm looking at the poster that's actually behind you. Um, oh. <laughs> and why maybe it was subconsciously yeah. on my mind. And also, I mean, there's an aspect of uh, thinking about the intention of what these what this brewery makes and then what is the style that they haven't made yet from a classical standpoint and just pulling all these things together that's how i approach uh you know i've approached a number of collaborations is i'm bringing something to the table that's not necessarily technical because i'm not a brewer by uh I categorically i'm not a brewer i'm someone that comes from a music background that's interested in beer that's interested in people that's interest i have all these things that i like to do and that are interesting and 
maybe we can make a beer around these things or around an event or something that we're all going to enjoy together and we want to have a beverage that's designed for that in some way. Hmm. I think I lack the confidence to go and do that. I think that must be what it is, or I lack the confidence to say that, um, hey, brewery, uh, here's a beer that you don't know that you should make that I'm going to tell you you should make. You're going to figure out exactly how to do it because I don't know how to do it, but you got to make it. It, it, I'm just telling you from my, like, what I I think, because I've been asked... Yeah, how many times do people ask you, hey, can we make a house beer for your store or your bar? So at this point, not that often because I just, I say no. I say I'm not really interested in it. And I I give a reason why. I say because I I don't know what I would give to this. It has to feel authentic, you know, to use the the catchphrase, the term. (laughs) The catchphrase (laughs) of the day, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. like that's perfect authenticity shouldn't be authentic that's the key to it no um but uh so they don't ask me that much anymore but i've been asked plenty of times and i've done a couple i've done um uh, just in the past i think year or two is, is the first time i've ever really done them um but uh yeah i don't know I, i'm not comfortable doing them i'm not sure why well i mean i think that it starts with an idea and it rarely comes from a brewery coming to you with an idea. Right. It has mm-hmm. to be something that comes from you and you think, okay, this is an awesome beer idea, or this is an occasion that would be best celebrated with this type of beverage. But I mean, how I think about my festival in relation to beverage specifically is like, okay, the first time I made like a beer for a Scorch Tundra, for example, it was not the beer that we now think of as the Scorch Tundra beer, but it was a coffee stout. It was meant to be just like a super delicious coffee stout that you enjoy at the first. It wasn't the first. Wow, that was a weird noise. Um, <laughs> that was good. It's supposed to match the music in some way, right? And in Sweden at that time, that was a um, pretty unique thing like to have a stout with barrel aged coffee at your event. Like right. no one was fucking doing that. That was stupid. Mm-hmm. It was stupid for me to take all that coffee in a duffel bag over there <laughs> and then figure out how I'm going to grind it and make all uh-huh. that shit happen. So I, I guess it's, uh, for me, like always being involved in events and music stuff, like, it's made sense that, okay, I'm always looking for a way to differentiate what I do from everyone because in the way that you don't feel like you're contributing something new, I am hyper paranoid that I am a part of a group of (laughs) other events that are like mine. And I'm always looking for ways to differentiate it in some way or, um, whether that's through like the lineup lineup curations, the biggest thing that you can do, the visual presentation and the media presentation of what you do with a live event are the ways that you can differentiate yourself and setting, right? But then outside of that, you know, the big thing that event organizers have figured out now is concessions is another way that they can mm-hmm. figure out how to differentiate themselves. And I don't really view concessions like you're not going to buy Scorch Tundra branded peanuts or like, uh, you know, like it's not that... <laughs> linear um but it's more like hey 
Your brand's just not strong enough, man. You can get him to do it if you had a stronger brand. Yeah, I got, <laughs> yeah, I got to talk to. I got to get an investor and then yeah. talk to uh, exactly. whatever that peanut producer is and make it happen, right? Oh yeah, the really cool artisan one, the authentic one. Yeah, they yeah, come yeah, with yeah. the with the shells on them. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Super authentic. Got to peel away. Yeah, yeah the dudes. people at the bottle will be really stoked <laughs> when there's all these peanuts on the fucking floor after the. You event. know what they actually do? They they um they roast them and they salt them. And they put a honey thing on them, and then they have somebody take the shell and reconstruct it back on. Oh, reconstructed, <laughs> deconstructed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's super authentic. Anyway, yeah. go on. No, precisely. And so, I like, I think it's, uh, it comes down to imagining what this event is going to be like and how all the music comes together. And, like, I imagine what the weather is going to be like because there's always a certain time of year. And, mm -hmm. What are people? What's the energy that people are bringing in, and what's going to come with the music, and how is all this going to interact? Okay, well, what beer or what liquor? Like we've done cocktails recently, we've done shot and beer specials at at co promote <laughs> shows. Like there's a lot of different tools that like ways that alcohol has been used to enhance the music, which is already which is like a curated affair to begin with too. So it's like the beverage then fits that instead of the other way around, which is like, mm -hmm. um, the beverage being designed for uh, independently and just to be on a shelf. It's like, there's a specific purpose for what it's going to be. And then an intent for it as well too, is like, you're going to drink these couple of beers and, uh, it's going to enhance your experience in some way. Um, right. Without being like Bud Light party, you know? Right. right. Which is which is a really dangerous thing. And it's something I think about is like there was a time when there weren't these types of projects happening as frequently and it was super enjoyable. But now I kind of get concerned that there's like over collaboration and there's a lot of that happening. There because is. There is. Breweries are looking for breweries are looking for market share. And they're well, like, I just okay. meant in society in general. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In in everything teaming up with uh celebrity chefs celebrity, right. like look at that. music yeah. everything now is like how do we join your fan base and my fan base to like it's it's been algorithmified or whatever i mean it it just has like mm -hmm. again something that is like two friends coming together or two people who respect each other coming together and doing something collaborations have been around forever and i'm sure people uh, you know the like I'm sure it's been done from a, a business first standpoint as well forever, but it's now so at least people had the decency to hide that fact <laughs> to be, you know, silly about it. Um, but now it's just out in the open. It's like, Oh, well it's cool. We found that, you know, the Venn diagram of, you know, your fan base and my fan base was great. And that's why we're doing this together. And, you know, that's why there's a, you know, Caterpillar branded, uh, you know, supreme backhoes now because mm -hmm. you know it's we just figured that you know we gamed the system right no there's definitely a lot of uh yeah there's definitely math that goes into figuring out how what the sales projections of products are going to be and i mean that's not all that surprising it's un it's no. it's unfortunate that brands can't stand on their own either too or that they feel like they need to come together in a way or business is such that that's what's necessitated. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in beer, the, the collab culture has 
yeah exploded. okay so yeah. like yeah so but, colla- like beer collaboration culture that was originally people that were like-minded and that were good friends making a beer that has no business ever being made again and usually and, it wasn't that good honestly no yeah they right. weren't but it was because there was some event that they were both attending someone was in yeah. town it's like yeah. hey this is an opportunity for us to do something stupid and have some fun and that's where i view the beer i made for your wedding you know mm-hmm. I went to Spiteful because they were good friends and they would entertain any idea, right? And I thought they were going <laughs> to put any it. Any idea, yeah. But, but, but I. Literally, th- they'll say no to nothing. No, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, I thought they were going to take a lot of the reins, but they put a lot of control under my hands. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I don't really know. But then I researched a lot and they entrusted me with a lot and they took what I did and kind of made it make sense, you know, but retained a lot of the original idea and the integrity of the idea and what I wanted to do for his wedding beer. And it actually turned out really well, I thought. And it was a fun idea, a fun outcome. And just, I don't know, I couldn't have been happier with the, with how it turned out, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think like if you, uh, if you go into if you go into it with an idea and a certain intention right then a collaboration makes sense and it's like collaboration is almost a dirty word now i feel like we kind of need a different <laughs> uh term or a different like mother category for all that but yeah because again anything that's authentic if people like authenticity so how do we then yeah, it's just been like gamified. It's just been, you know, social media-ified and and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there's good and bad of everything, but I think it's up to the the true believers, the um, people who are the creatives, the people who are the like true believers in those people making the creative stuff, like you with Destroysa and Scratch and all that stuff. You know, we all have a role to play. I do think that, you know, Destroyson needs you and you need them. Like, you need that stuff to be there to, like, get you going. And they need people out there to, like, tell everyone, like, you need to drink this beer. That beer is shit. This beer is awesome. This is why I'm saying that. Like, you know, and I think when it's it's taking our, to use a term that Edmar uses, cultural capital and just like spending it for uh, with no real they understand like oh people like that i'm going to do that but that no understanding or maybe even to be more cynical about it maybe an understanding but not caring it doesn't it's irrelevant does that that make sales perfect then then that's what i do um you know, it's it's having some, I think, morality to it and some decency where it's like, come on, man. Like, if you're not going to be, don't don't use, don't take authenticity and use that as your, like, I don't know. Authenticity is something that you have to allow others to perceive. You can't go into it thinking, I'm going to make something that's authentic. <laughs> right, but there are people who definitely are trying to gamify authenticity who are trying to 
make that as authentic as possible. Yeah, maybe they maybe they always maybe that's always been there. It's like maybe that's why some of these big brands that we've seen are you know named what they are. I mean, maybe you know Aunt Jemima was called that because it had this. Uh, I don't know. Somebody thought that that was an authentic name for a syrup or whatever. I mean, it seems ridiculous to us nowadays. But, you know, maybe back in the day, that's how what it was. So, you know, I don't know. I'd be curious again to have this person come back from long ago and be like, oh, man, that's that's always been going on. Like you, you, you guys are fretting over stuff. That's always we had that in my day, too. You know, I, I that would make you feel better, you know, because, <laughs> you know, we lived through that and we're here. We are still. Uh huh. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I think we should wrap up. That's been so. uh, really it's been only awesome. been four hours. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's only. Um, <laughs> so Chris, tell Christ. us uh, a little bit about uh, anything coming up at Beer Temple. We should be aware of. Well, it's going to take me at least another two hours to get okay, through all cool, those cool. things. Um, we uh, well, we have our uh, shop open. Uh, we have our tap room open in a, in a very limited capacity. Um, we have an online shop. We're going to announce that we're going to be doing same day delivery for, I think all of Chicago very soon. So no matter where you are in Chicago, uh, you should be able to, or even the suburbs, um, out to as far as like Algonquin, um, we're going to be announcing that we're going to be doing same day very yeah. soon, which is cool and exciting to us. Taking a page out of Amazon. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, we've partnered up with somebody. We've partnered up with Amazon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. His name is Beth Jezos. I'm not going to say exactly who it is, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, we're excited about that. And, uh, we're going to be doing some kind of, uh, uh, like reserve room, uh, kind of like bring your bubble type thing stuff with very limited reserved beers coming up soon. Like stuff that like only a few places in the entire country have gotten. And most, I think have already sold through and, and, uh, some really cool lambics and special lambics and stuff like that, where you can, uh, reserve it. You will be the, you and your crew will be the only ones. And we're very excited to, to announce that. Um, but more than that, um, we just have a shop where, uh, people will help you find a beer that you may like to help you discover stuff that is, f uh, kind of a fun journey for you. So that's, uh, that's it. We're just, uh, trying to figure out this whole thing and, and reinvent ourselves over and over again. And for your huge corporation, we're doing a lot of virtual tastings too. So, you know, uh, Amazon. There's, there's that. Yeah. Amazon, <laughs> if you're out there. Um, you know, um, um, I'm available. I got to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Awesome. It. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Yeah. Chris, thank you for thank joining you us. guys. This is great. This is by far the longest interview or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I've, uh, not an interview, but podcast I've ever been a part of. So it was, it was fun. The time didn't think it was any more than three and a half hours, but it didn't feel like more than three and a half hours. Really? <laughs> no way. Time no flew. Way. Time yeah. flies. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll see you guys next week. Yep, thank you. Mm -hmm.